Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 106, part B. My name is Travis Oney. I'm your host for the evening. I'll be joined by my guest host for the evening, Seth Stowes from Twins Daily and the Twins Prospect Handbook. And uh, without any further ado, I'm going to bring Seth into the show and uh, we'll get started. Seth, how's it going? I'm doing great. Just finished up a little taco salad. Uh, you know, I had a bit of a neck pinch today, but uh, it's it's the weekend, so everything's wonderful. <laughs> uh, thanks for uh, and tribulations in my life. Yeah, thanks for uh, hopping on with me tonight. Uh, I've had a little bit of the flu this week, so uh, I'm not hundred percent. So I appreciate you uh, making the time. Hey, sometimes you got to go out and play when you're only 70, 60%. So uh, good job. <laughs> um, our, our first guest on tonight's show is Devlin Clark, also known as Minnesota's. Uh, uh, I forgot what is his Twitter handle Oh, the ultimate twin fan. It's been a while since I've been on a podcast, so uh, forgive me, guys. Uh, so I'm going to bring on Devlin, and uh, we're going to talk some twins. Hey guys, how's it going? Yeah. Hey, Devlin. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Not a problem, Travis. Glad you're feeling better, ready to talk some twins. Yeah, uh, my first question, and I want to get both you guys' uh, uh, idea. What's going on with uh, Jose Barrios and his arbitration in in your in your mind? You know, I I think what it is is Barrios kind of has a number. Um, I think a lot of it is he looks at himself maybe as a number one starter. And on the Twins, he definitely is a number one starter, and I think he wants to be paid like other number one starters. And I think other teams or other, you know, or the arbitration process may look at his numbers more as a high two to mid three kind of rotation guy. And I think that's kind of where it's coming in. I saw Seth tweet something that said, you know, we have – he wants to see numbers, and I completely agree. You know, I don't think it's that the Twins and Barrios are, are 5 or 8 or $10 million off. I think it's, you know, maybe a couple million dollars here and there, maybe a couple of years of free agency. But it's, it's you know, it doesn't send a good sign, but I think in the long run the Twins will get, the twins will get it done with Barrios. I mean, y'all Seth, know my opinion. opinion 
it's it's part of the arbitration process. Players want a certain amount. The teams want to play them, pay them a certain amount. If they're not close enough, they exchange numbers, and maybe it goes to arbitration, but most likely they'll settle sometime in between. So, I mean, it's it's kind of much ado about nothing. It's just the arbitration process, and that's how this works. And, um, I mean, it's really nothing more than that. Um, I, another guy I wanted to ask you guys about, uh, uh, Byron Buxton got just over uh, $3 million. Is that where you were thinking, or is is that more or less than what you were thinking that they would come in at? You know, he he's coming off his age 25 season. He played 87 games last year. He had 10 home runs, 46 RBIs. The guy is, you know, amazingly fearless in center field. He plays he plays the center field maybe unlike anybody the Twins have ever had before. And I think I think three million probably for the production that he gave the Twins is probably fair, um, especially because he's had a injury history. He's had a hard time staying healthy. I think if Buxton has a big year and stays healthy this year, he's gonna he's gonna be up in that eight or nine million dollar range next year. And I think the Twins might try to do a multi year extension with him, but. I, I think three million is a good a good number. I could have you know I would have been okay with even four four and a half five something like that. But a lot of Twins fans might think oh they got a good deal. But you know I I think you cut Buxton some slack. He was hurt last year, so. I mean MLB trade rumors projected him at two point nine. Twins Daily projected him at three point five. So he got just shy of 3.1, you know, so that's definitely a fair number for what he was projected to get. Um, while I agree with Devlin in terms of if he has a good year next year, he's probably in that $7, 8000000 million range. Um, now is the time to extend him if you believe in him, if you believe that he can be a good player and do what he did in the 87 games he played in 2019 and ideally stay on the field more. Now is the time to try to get him locked up, not uh, – not after a great season, so I'd I'd certainly be having those conversations. Speaking of that, uh, who uh, last year it was the Jorge Polanco and uh, Max Kepler. I think I asked Seth this when I had him on the other night. Um, who is this year's version of of who you'd like to see the Twins lock up? this off season to long-term contracts to both of you. Um, the, the one guy, the one, well, the two guys, um, I would say one would be Mitch Garver. Obviously I don't think he's going anywhere, but you know, he's coming off a 31 home run season. So, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be cheap by any means, but I think you definitely lock up your number one catcher. You give him that contract, you reward him for the year that he had and what he's going to do going forward, especially being the number one catcher. And then the other guy um, that I would try to lock up honestly is, is Jake Odorizzi. I think he's a solid number two. Most nights he could be a number one. I think you give him a three-year, fifty-seven, sixty million dollar deal. He's making seventeen and a half this year. I think you boost it up to twenty to twenty-two. You need to lock him up long-term. You uh, you 
may not have a whole lot of options in-house that are ready, and it seems like a lot of the starting pitching market has been either reluctant to come to Minnesota for whatever reason. So I think you need to, uh, I think, you know, he accepted the qualifying offer. I think you need to lock him up long-term to at least a multi-year deal. Seth, how about you? What do you do? You have anybody in mind that you would like to see them lock up? Well, I think in part A of your uh, show here, I've mentioned Buxton again. Just obvious choice right now. Um, sign him uh, when he's down a little bit, um, and yet showed the signs of what he can become this year. Um, it's only going to get more expensive to do that. I, I Going to Devlin's idea with with uh, Garver, I, I'd have no problem with giving him like a three year deal, um, but I mean, there's really no reason for the Twins to do that. He's already 29; um, they already have team control of him for the next four years, um, so there's no no reason to do that. He'll be probably 33, about 32, 33 at that point, and then you can make a decision there. Um, Odorizzi, I like uh, the idea of looking to try to sign him, but I'd be more in that three you know, 45 to 50 range. Um, you know, I I don't know that he would have got a whole lot more than that this year in, in uh, free agency. And But, you know, I'd have no problem with locking him up for a couple of years because I do think what he did last year took, uh, you know, took him to that level that I think he can repeat it as well. And that's obviously the key. You don't want to just sign a 30-year-old and hope that he goes backwards. So, I mean, the other guys, obviously, Brios is a guy they're going to continue to talk to. He now is at the same stage where uh, Aaron Nola and Luis Severino were a year ago, first year of arbitration. And, uh, you know, those guys got those, what, 30, 35, $40 million long-term extensions. He's at that range. I think he's going to ask for more than them. Um, I don't know that he'll get it, but I think he'll ask for it. Uh, obviously, you want to keep Barrios as long as, around as long as possible. My thing is, is his, as he saw what Zach Wheeler got, he should be looking to that number when he becomes a free agent. Um, Devlin, uh, what, what's your thoughts on locking up Barrios long-term? Yeah, no, I agree with what Seth said. You know, I think that uh, Wheeler's a good comp for him. I think if you can do, you know, if you can do five for 50 or five for 55, six for 60, something like that, you do it. That might be a little on the high end, but you know, at, if you if you can get him for about ten to twelve million dollars a year for at least three to four years, I, I think that that's something they need to do. They've got a lot of they've got a lot invested in him. He's a you know he's the Twins' number one guy. You want to go to him and say, hey, you know, you're our number one guy. You pitched, you know, you're a two time All Star. We have confidence in you. Here's a contract that rewards it. Now go out there and get to the next level. Uh, Seth. Uh, when you go through this arbitration process, one under Terry Ryan, they just didn't. They settled everyone from Kyle Loesch until uh, Derek Felvey went to arbitration with Kyle Gibson. Is there a, a wonder of uh, creating some disharmony amongst the player by going to arbitration? I mean, that's always a risk. They did it last year with Gibson, and it certainly didn't have any ill effect. Uh, probably depends on the individual. Uh, ultimately, it's a business thing between the agents and the team, uh, but the player 
does have to hear what the team says. So, yeah, there's a chance of that. Um, but like you said, it, it's so rare for cases to go to arbitration. Um, most people believe that even last year when the Twins did it with, with Gibson, they did it. And I, I, you know, I, I believe on the most recent Gleeman and the Geek uh, episode, they talked about it a little bit, but um, that there was a belief that they just did that as almost like practice for their new front office knowing that Gibson would handle it professionally. It wouldn't create any ill issues, ill feelings. Um, and I mean, I certainly believe that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not something anyone wants to do, but it is part of the process, part of the business. All right. Uh, Devlin, let's get on to the, away from the arbitration. I think most people believe most of those cases will work themselves out. So I want to get on to the the winter free agency. Uh, when it comes to Josh Donaldson, do you see that getting done, or are the Twins wasting their time? Um, I I think he wants to play in Atlanta. I think he's I I don't think Atlanta's got the biggest offer on the table. I think the the reports that said that, you know, he's going to give the the Braves a chance to make the final offer and have the last say were correct. But I also think I think it was Doogie that mentioned that, uh, you know, he sees the appeal of playing in the AL Central and facing the Tigers and the White Sox and the Royals, you know, 57 times over the course of a season total as opposed to the NL East where you'd have to face Scherzer and DeGrom and Corbin and Strasburg and all the NLS and I'm sorry, NL East pitchers. So I think he definitely does see that. He's 34 years old. I think a lot of fans are clamoring for it. Um, but if it was me, I would still pursue a trade for a starting pitcher. I, I think the pitching is what they need to focus on. Josh Donaldson would be nice. I don't think it's going to get done. I think he wants to play in Atlanta. He's from that area. He went to college in that area. Um, And you saw the Nationals. They were in on him, too, and they made a bunch of moves. They signed Sterling Castro and Eric Thames and guys like that. So they're moving on, too. I think Donaldson needs to get to a point where he just says, give me your final offer, and I'll pick a team. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, Seth, what is I, I, I saw on Twitter a couple days ago about all the analytic uh, views of the Twins infield defense. Is do they need to improve that infield defense through Josh Donaldson or or somebody on the trade market? I mean, they need to improve the infield defense, um, and Donaldson would do that. I don't need know that they need to spend whatever Donaldson asks. Um, but, yeah, they need to improve. I mean, Sano, Polanco, Arise, they're all um, below average fielders with their position. Um, and we're not sure who's even going to play first base yet. So, you know, grabbing Donaldson, who's probably a plus or slightly plus uh, third baseman, moving Sano over to first, uh, which I don't know if that's a positive or a negative um, fielding-wise. I don't think he'll be as good as Crone was, but he probably will be just fine. 
I mean, ultimately, they don't have a lot of choices if they don't get Donaldson um, because, I mean, they can go add Mitch Moreland, which I think would be huge because of how good he is defensively at first base. That'll save errors for the other three. But if that's the move, then, frankly, I mean, Sano and Polanco and Arise just need to get better um, or you accept it because those are the guys. Uh, Devlin, are are you – on board with uh, Louisa Rice being the everyday second baseman now that Johnson Sculpt has went on to Detroit. Yeah, I, I, I am. Um, I think I think two big two big things happened last year. One is not only the way Arias played. You know, obviously he played 92 games, but he hit 334 in those 92 games, and he had 20 doubles. I think it's not only kind of his emergence, and, you know, I think we all remember that plate appearance against Aroldis Chapman and the Yankees when he came in, when he was asked to pinch hit with an 0-2 count and he ended up drawing a walk. Um, that was that was an amazing plate appearance. And I think you kind of saw, you know, what could be with the Luis Arias and what is with him. But I think the other thing is the way Scope handled it. And I don't think at the time that got enough attention but Scope handled it really professionally. You know, he, he he came in, you know, assuming he was going to be the starter for the whole year, and I think probably thinking that. And, you know, he had 256 with 23 home runs, so it's not like he had a terrible season by any means. But he ended up he ended up playing in, in 121 games, and he really kind of gave way to Arias. I'm all on board for Arias. I I love the way that I love the way he plays. I love the way that he goes about his business. He's got great plate discipline. I think people need to maybe calm down on some of the uh, some of the comparisons to Tony Gwynn, but you can definitely see that that he's he's got the plate discipline to be a very very good major league player for many years. Seth, I was going to ask you. Uh... Is is Luis Arise the second baseman of the future, or when Royce Lewis is ready, you move Polanco over to second base? In your mind, I mean, if Arise keeps hitting three thirty and getting on base almost forty percent of the time, he'll play. <laughs> I mean, that's just the reality. <laughs> uh, and then you figure it out from there. Uh, you know, maybe that's when Sano moves over to first and Lewis comes up at third base, or you know. Uh, there's certainly options, and they're all good options because uh, you've got that kind of talent. You play it, so uh, and then you figure it out from there. Arise deserves every chance to get that job. I mean, I can't even imagine he's not penned in to second base in Rocco Baldelli's opening day lineup already. There's no reason to even look to someone else. So, yeah, it's yeah. That one. Um... My my next question is, when it comes to when we were talking about guys signing long term contracts, nobody brought up Miguel Sano. Uh, he had 35 home runs last year. Where is he at in your mind when it comes to uh, long term future with the Twins? Well, you know, I, I definitely think he's in their plans. 
Um, you know, like you mentioned, Travis, you know, 105 games last year, 34 home runs, 79 RBIs, 55 walks, and 159 strikeouts with a 247 average. His OPS plus was one was 138. I think that they look at Miguel Sano and rightfully so they know he's got a lot of talent. I think they they want to see maybe a repeat performance of what he did last year. I think you want to see maybe 80 walks and let's say 120 strikeouts. You want to improve that on-base percentage and decrease the strikeouts. I think a lot of it is going to do with his weight. If he stays healthy, he can stay flexible and and keep his mobility high. He's going to have a better season defensively. I think he's one of those guys that if he makes an error mentally or in the field, he takes it to the plate with him. And I think that you saw that kind of last year where he stopped doing that where he didn't take those mistakes that he made in the field to the plate with him. So I definitely think that he's in their long-term future. I think that he's somebody that, you know, that they want to lock up, but I don't think they have any reason to until, um, until he gives, until he proves otherwise that, you know, he's either going to light the world on fire or be a complete failure, you know. And right now he, he's coming off a good season, a very good season, you know, in terms of home runs. But you you, you definitely see room for improvement there. Uh, Seth, uh, what, it, it sounds like they uh, shopped Eddie Rosario in the offseason, but they weren't getting the, the return that, that uh, Belvi and Levine wanted, so they haven't moved him. Is Eddie Rosario part of the future, or is he one of those guys that could see himself traded in the next year or so? I think you play it out. Um, You know, they can have those conversations about potentially trading him, but he's going to make $8 million or something like that in 2020. He's going to make more than that in 2021. You're not going to get a huge haul for a guy with that little service time left before free agency um, at that salary. So, and and at the same time, the Twins shouldn't feel like they just should give away an outfielder who, um, you know, hits 30 plus homers, drives in over 90 to 100 runs, and you know, does some of the things that he can do when he's on. He He's at a point now where he's he's got to know that uh, he's got to kind of make or break because he's getting to those dollar values that, you know, if he wants to make more, he's going to have to do it. So I'm good with them not trading him, giving him away, not giving him away. Um, I think they'll continue to look. But if they don't get something significant, you hold on to him and, and let it play itself out. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, Devlin, what's I, I'm a little bit harder on uh, Byron Buxton than, than most. Uh, can you argue that that he's an injury-prone player and and that he is taking too many chances, flying into walls and, and getting himself hurt? Is, is that fair or am I being too hard on him? 
Well, Travis, here's his games played since 2015. 46, 92, 140, 28, and 87. So over a five-year span when he could have played in a maximum of 810 games, he's played in 393 of them. Um, You know, that's less than half the games. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of the injuries he has are due to him being, you know, careless in the field. And I definitely don't think that he should stop playing the way that he's been taught. Um, I think he just needs to be a little bit smarter about some of the some of the plays that he tries to make, um, you know, in terms of either diving or the way he hits into the wall or maybe hitting with his back instead of his shoulder, things like that. I, it's hard to say he's injury prone, but you look at the numbers and the games played, like I said, it's out of an, a possible 810 regular season games. Over the last five years, he's played 393 of them. So it's really hard. It's really hard not to say yes. He's he's or it's really easy to say yes. He is an injury-prone player. His career WAR is 9.9 over five seasons, and 5.1 of that was in 2017 when he had that great year and he played in 140 games and finished 18th in MVP voting and won the gold glove. If you take that away, he's at a 4.8 war in four seasons. So is he injury prone? Yeah, he probably is, but should he, should he play, should he completely change the way he plays defense? No, not at all. Kirby Puckett and Torrey Hunter didn't change the way they played defense. And I think it turned out okay for them. Now, Obviously, Puckett played right field, and so did Corey Hunter, and that might be a decision or a conversation the Twins have, you know, sometime down in the future. Do we switch Kepler and Buxton between center and right and put Kepler in center and Buxton in right? But is he injury prone? Yeah, he probably is because he's played less than, you know, 95 games in four out of the five seasons. But when he has stayed healthy, he's been very, very well. So it it kind of goes both ways. Uh, Seth, uh, how can you tone down the injuries while not toning down his aggressiveness? I I don't know. And that's something he's going to have to figure out. Um, you don't want to tone down the aggressiveness. You just want to tell him not to run into walls. But, I mean, he almost had a – concussion from diving going forward um his shoulder won this last year he hit a wall but he you know hit it at an angle that didn't look bad so i mean previous year he followed the ball off of his toe and you know that took away his speed and all of that so uh, yeah i don't know how any of that necessarily can just be stopped but you know i mean you like to think as players get older they learn different things and learn about their bodies and learn about, uh, you know, what they can and can't and should and shouldn't do to stay on the field. And ultimately you just play the game and see what happens. All right. Uh, Devlin, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. Uh, it, it was great to talk to you. Uh, uh, we'll have to do this again real soon. Hey, Devlin, no can I ask you one question? Travis, can I ask Devlin one question? Yep. Yep. 
All right, Devlin, I know it's been a rough couple of years, but I got to imagine that uh, throwing out that first pitch at a Twins game last year was pretty awesome. Can you just, uh, I mean, I know in a minute or two isn't enough, but what was that experience like for you last year? Yeah, you know, I uh, I got to throw out, I won an auction at uh, Twins Fest last year, and I got to pick the game that I wanted to throw it out at, and I picked August 24th. Because uh, it was about a week or so after my birthday, one of the first homestands after my birthday, and it was pretty unbelievable. You know, like you guys, I've been a Twins fan pretty much my entire life. I grew up, um, you know, in St. Paul, going to you know the Metrodome and stuff like that. And they, Twins players, have always been my heroes, and I've always wanted to emulate them, but never got anywhere near that. And just being able to kind of have that that experience of throwing out the first pitch, you know, being up on the scoreboard, having them, you know, send me the pictures and, and just seeing the reaction that my friends and family and everybody on social media gave me, it was pretty cool. Um, that's a ball. That's a ball that I'm never going to get rid of. I have that ball in a cube up on my uh, dresser and I got a Jersey and the twins gave me a hat and four tickets to the game. So it's it's an unbelievable experience to be standing out there where you're watching a lot of your heroes play and where you have a lot of great uh, memories just watching watching people play. And to be honest, in that moment, I completely understand what Billy Chappell said in For Love of the Game when he said you just tone it out. There were probably twenty to twenty five thousand people there and I didn't hear a single one of them. All I saw was T C's gloves. So it was an amazing, amazing moment. Wow, that that is that is something that I think every twins fan can can look at and and be uh a little envious of but but also be able to to say congratulations to you because winning that that auction was quite quite the the thing and uh congratulations on getting to do that yeah thank you you know it was a, it was a great cause obviously all the money goes to the twins community fund so it was it was a great cause um the only thing is, is Bill Guerin of the Wild made me made me look bad. You know, I'm out there getting ready, I'm getting warm, and you know, I'm practicing, and I've been practicing in my backyard for months leading up to that moment, and and I'm getting ready to throw. And Bill Guerin, the new Wild GM, gets announced, and he goes up there, and he's an athlete, and he throws a perfect strike, and what do I do? I bounce it. So, I mean, definitely, you know, he made me. He made me look bad, but no, it was it was an unbelievable moment, and uh, I know my parents would have been really proud to see that, and and uh, yeah, it was just a very very cool moment that uh, I'll never forget. Hey, thanks right, for sharing, uh, Devlin. We'll uh, hopefully see you in Twins Fest in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you got it, buddy. We'll grab a beer. All right, you have a good night, and thanks for making the time for me. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll we'll have to do this again real soon. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you later, and uh, I'll see you at Twin Fest. Uh, take care. Sounds good. See ya. All right. See ya. That was uh, Devlin Clark, the Ultimate Twins fan, and uh, 
our next guest on uh, Minnesota Sports Weekly will be uh, Eric Norquist, also known as Nordo, as he is going to uh, preview the Vikings and the 49ers game. And uh, without any further ado, here it is. Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly is uh, the producer of the 9 to Noon show with Paul Allen, uh, Voices of the Vikings, uh, Nordo. And uh, without any further ado, I'm going to bring him on, and uh, we'll get at it. How you guys doing? Nordo, how's it going? I'm doing excellent. Uh, it's a, be- it's a beautiful day. Today. It is. It is. Uh, it's always a better day when the Vikings get a playoff victory. Yeah, it was impressive yesterday, man. I, I guess I, I've been told that that's the first overtime playoff win in franchise history for the Vikings. And wow. uh, we've had to wait, I guess, uh, a decade and a half just for them to win a playoff game away from home. So for a team that Ended the season kind of uh, limping its way to the finish line, ten and six record, kind of a stacked NFC. You can uh, you can cross the Saints off that list, and uh, the Vikings are moving on. It's pretty cool. Um, a lot of people have gotten on Kirk Cousins for not coming up big in the big games, but uh, yesterday, especially in overtime, uh, he was. Right on, in my opinion. Uh, he was 19 for 31 for 242 with a touchdown, no interceptions, and uh, with a 78 QBR. Um, what were your thoughts on, on Cousins as a whole yesterday, and is that a fair assessment? Well, I thought uh, I thought Kirk was – he didn't necessarily have to be the greatest that has ever played the game. And he certainly was not bad by any stretch of the imagination. Kirk was really good yesterday. And, uh, you know, this is, this is an offense that has really been set up, given the status of our offensive line. And all things considered, all factors need to be in the mix. So you get Dalvin Cook back, you get Alexander Madison back. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing when you look at how, you know, how much different Kirk Cousins looks when they actually execute the offense that uh, that has been, you know, allowed them to be so successful this year. So the play action was back with Dalvin, the bootlegging, they were able to move the pocket a little bit more yesterday. Uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't come out great guns uh, as explosive as maybe some of us would have envisioned given the, the game and the environment and the team that they were facing but ultimately running the ball as effectively as they were, you, you were kind of wondering in the final moments and you, you know, you mentioned the overtime drive and such that uh, were we going to be talking about how Kirk had missed all of these throws or the mistakes that he would have made? Was he eventually going to cave to the weird hostile environment and all of those things? I think that's the best indicator to the type of game that he had. Uh, one of the best throws you'll ever see Kirk make to Adam Thielen, that 43-44 yarder, to get him first and goal inside the five uh, in one of the biggest moments of his career, the biggest moment of his career, I suppose you could say. 
and and he executed. He never wilted under the pressure. Uh, he was kind of getting uh, a little, I shouldn't say flustered, but he was kind of getting knocked around a bit early in the game, but he stood in there. He made the throws. Adam Thielen had another, it was like a 34-yard catch, I think, still in regulation, where Kirk knew he was going to get blasted, but he stood in there, made the perfect throw to Thielen, and uh, and took the hits. And that's uh, that's the quarterback we need. It's the quarterback we have. And uh, it's very, very, uh, very positive. It provides a lot of optimism moving forward. And, and Kirk was great. Um, uh, in your opinion, uh, how good of a combination is uh, uh, Delvin Cook uh, along with Alexander Madison with a little bit of Amir Abdullah thrown into the mix? Yeah, you know, I, I think, and Amir, you know, Amir is an NFL player, but you can probably just stop after the first two, right? I mean, it's it's Dalvin <laughs> and Madison, and, you know, uh, Amir provides valuable, you know, he, he can contribute to this team, there's no doubt. But at the running back position, and we saw, you know, God bless Mike Boone, uh, there are two guys on this team that we want back there at any given time, and it's, it's Cook and Madison. And so um, the – what what's good about it is you have two incredibly intelligent players uh, from a pass protection standpoint. Both of them can catch the ball out of the backfield as, uh, as evidenced, you know, not only when Madison was asked to do it when Dalvin left in the Seattle game, but I, I think he had a reception, a couple of targets yesterday too. So um, Dalvin is, is certainly the feature of the operation had nearly 30 carries or something like that yesterday in the two scores. Uh, but Madison is, is certainly a pretty sweet yang to Dalvin's yin. So um, very much a dynamic duo. And getting back to kind of this offense and how it works with Kirk Cousins, having those guys in the mix and the threat that they offer uh, clearly helps the quarterback and, uh, and this offense as a whole. Um, a guy I want to ask you about uh... – because it seems like it's been 10 weeks since we got a, a healthy Adam Thielen. And uh, he really came up big yesterday, seven catches for 129 yards, including yeah. that long 43-yard reception. How, how uh, important is it going to be going forward to have both uh, Adam and uh, also Stephon Diggs and uh, along with Irv Smith, Kyle Rudolph, and the rest of the, of, of the gang, how important is it to have every, all your weapons at your disposal? Well, I mean, you know, coming into the season, if you were saying what's optimism, you know, why are you – why do you feel that this offense with Kevin Stefanski, you bring in Gary Kubiak to kind of oversee the whole thing, you know, what – what leads you down the path of saying, you know, I think that year two of Kirk Cousins is going to be better and why? Uh, the health component of is a, ma- is a major thing. And the fact that you have two top ten wide receivers on your team, uh, even when uh, there was, there was some uh, emotion involved with Stephon Diggs yesterday on the sideline, whatever, uh, people tended to focus on, on some of that kind of stuff, you know, and, and, of course, earlier in the season that was kind of a thing. But uh, the thing with Thielen, you know, and it's, I guess, actually to liken it to the running back conversation as I think about it, you can get by with Mike Boone 
when you're up by 20 at the L.A. Chargers. If you are going to go for an extended amount of time without Dalvin Cook, we see issues that arise. So B.C. Johnson is, is a cool story, late-round draft pick, already contributed on a weekly basis on this team. That's cool. You can't go seven or eight games with B.C. Johnson when you're waiting for a top 10 wide receiver to get back in the mix. And Thielen's game started about as bad as it could be. You got the fumble. Uh, I can't remember whether it was Dalvin or Madison, but there was a chain-moving run. It was a first down, and Thielen got clipped with a, with a holding penalty. So it couldn't have started any worse for him. But then, as you saw, you know, the, uh, the seven catches – the two, the two, the only two explosive pass plays of the game were both to Thielen, and it's just uh, you know a lot forcing defenses to cover more than they're able to. And Thielen's route running is spectacular, and uh, and you can tell given how when things go in these games in, in the positive way, who's generally cashing in on those things. I think it's pretty clear that uh, Thielen is. Uh, Certainly, you could almost call him a security blanket in some ways. His ability to make plays, his reliability to hold on to catches, make ridiculous catches, and produce the way that he has. I mean, it was so fun to watch him finally shake some of that rust off and really get back to full speed. And he was a massive uh, key, obviously, to the win. My my next question is, is it unfair for the national media and even the state media that I listen to today uh, on the Kyle Rudolph touchdown in overtime, is it unfair to uh, make as big a deal as as some people are are making, whether it should have been offensive pass interference or or not? Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and our perception would change dramatically if we were on the losing side of that play, you know, and the NFL kind of got right out in front of it, you know, looked like some mutual contact, not enough to uh, really warrant throwing the flag. There are, now we have, of course, in the social media age, everyone's opinion is out there and everyone's opinion matters. So there's some former refs that, they would have thrown a flag. Okay, well, they didn't. I, I, I don't know if it's it's unfair or not. I think it's clear, you know, this is the, the latest example of really a league that is a, you know, billion-dollar-upon-billion-dollar billion juggernaut of an entity in the NFL that uh, could maybe fix these things by either full-time referees or – you know, trying new pathways to consistently getting the answer. Um, maybe in some ways simplifying the decision-making process for the referees and all of those things. There's no consistency to it, and uh, it's it's unfortunate that we watch games like this, and we don't have we can't immediately leave the game going, "Wow, that was a tremendous football game." We're stuck microanalyzing frame by frame, slow motion of two pro athletes jockeying for position uh, in, a, in a game-ending spot. So um, I'm not if, – if if I were a Saints fan, I'd probably be doing the same thing. I mean, if, if you're just going to be honest with yourself about it, that's, uh, that's the NFL world that has been created and fed to us. And so it's, I think it's really impossible uh, to not see that kind of uh, – those conclusions or conspiracy or – 
frustrations arise from a moment like that. Uh, he did extend his arm. Kyle Rudolph extended his arm. So um, it was a third down play at the four-yard line. Do they go for it on fourth down? Do they kick the field goal? There are questions about that. How about Will Lutz? Doesn't miss a field goal at the end of the first half. How about Drew Brees as they're driving to take the lead, not fumble it away on the strip sack by Daniil Hunter? I mean, you know, there are all kinds of things. There were missed penalties early in the game. All of those things. Uh, we can microanalyze it, uh, but ultimately I feel pretty clean about this victory. Yeah, so do I. I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh yeah. My last question before I before I uh, j- jump to the 49ers um is Sure. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the the defense uh getting a sack and a half from uh Daniel Hunter and uh Everson Griffin. How big of a deal was it moving them inside on uh on on passing downs to uh, on, to uh make Drew Brees' life uncomfortable. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was it was a huge deal, and they were productive doing it. So you saw that in the game, obviously. Um, you know, the, the key to it was is the, the Saints offensive line is pretty good, and specifically on the bookends with Teron Armstead and then Ryan Ramchek on the right side. And so to create a, a look that Zimmer has never shown this, I mean, that's, that's the brilliant part about it. And, you know, you can, I think sometimes you can overhype adjustments. You can, you know, they're trying to win every game that they play. So it's not like, you know, Zimmer's had this in his pocket since week two, but he was going to wait until hopefully they face the saints in the playoffs. I mean, that's not really how that works. However, knowing the saints like he does and being in a defensive uh, guru that Zimmer is, you know, that was kind of the worry, right? Like, how are you going to attack Drew Brees and keep this team that have been averaging 40 points a game over the last month? How are you going to keep them in check, keep the game closer so that the road team might get out alive with a win? And so that's kind of the impressive thing. You, you can't, you can't overblow that at all. It was absolutely imperative. Uh, similarly to that L.A. Chargers game with all the takeaways and the sacks on rivers and such, uh, they were able to do it with interior pressure. And it's like, wait a minute. I got a Fadi Odenabo, no crack on a Fadi, who is a defensive end by nature, but he's been playing inside some of that three technique. We've gotten seven sacks out of a Fadi. What if? What if we put our two big horses in the middle and see what happens? It probably is risky. I mean, you think about if they're doing, you know, certain run sets or if uh, if they block it up nicely, you lose contain. And there, there are all sorts of things that could potentially have gone the wrong direction. But it didn't. And I think that uh, it was certainly the MVP move of the entire game, of all things considered, uh, that Zimmer found a new wrinkle that he doesn't do. And, uh, and he was able to uh, make Breeze's life hell. I mean, Taysom Hill was the better quarterback yesterday for the, for the Saints. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It, it was uh, Taysom Hill actually gave the Vikings the most problem of, of anybody on, the, on the, their whole team, including Mike Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Thomas, uh, that was, you know, I guess when I was looking at matchups, I didn't, it's not like I knew that, Zimmer was going to put uh, Daniil Hunter and Everson Griffin on the inside, but I did like 
the prospect of Zimmer making Breeze's life hell. And that subsequently, I believe, would impact the productivity of Michael Thomas. Now, Michael Thomas is statistically and probably by a lot of people's opinions, the best wide receiver in the NFL right now. And he's earned all of the respect in the world. But when you watch the Vikings, when things, you know, ultimately, if they were going to lose this game, I just felt like it wasn't going to be Michael Thomas. And there are always, you know, it would have been the second or the third guy. We, we, we could have left talking about Taysom Hill and how he ruined our season. We could have been talking about Deontay Harris with the big catch and that big kick return just before halftime. It's always, it, it always feels like Zimmer's always had a hold on getting their top threat off of the table, and then you just got to worry about who the second or third guy's going to be. They've had trouble running the ball. So Alvin Kamara, once again, held in check yesterday. I mean, it was just uh, Taysom Hill. It's just he, you can't explain what he does because he does everything. And uh, thankfully – that was not uh, that was not the deciding factor in this win. Okay, uh, my last question: uh, What the Vikings move on and take on the San Francisco 49ers on Saturday at 3:30? Um, Jimmy Garoppolo led 49ers. Yeah. What is the biggest key, in your opinion, to to coming out of the bay with 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 the season still alive. Yeah, getting a victory out there. It's going to be tough. Uh they they've earned their number 1 overall seed. They're very good. Um there's no doubt about it. And you know, it's something between now and Saturday as I continue, you know, hop on that game pass bit or whatever and I'll create, you know, some crazy concocted opinions. Um I think that <laughs> what's interesting about this matchup is, is the 49ers do kind of, they look very similar offensively to the Vikings. And so, you know, we will see Jimmy G on the move a little bit. They'll move the pockets. They will do play action and bootleg. This is an incredibly effective running team. They might be, they might be second behind the, uh, behind the Ravens at this point, but, you know, they've had two or three guys and up and down, some of them are a bit injured, but they got three guys back there that can run for a mile on you. So uh, Kyle Shanahan's elite, you know, Gary Kubiak and some of the offensive things that we do kind of are weaved into that hole. If there's a coaching tree, the Shanahan tree, quote unquote. So there are a lot of similarities. You know, I think that in some ways that might help the Vikings defense get into practice against it. Conversely, that'll help the 49ers as well. Um, I think that uh, George Kittle is going to be the talk, just like it was Drew Brees and Mike Thomas. Um, I think that the X factor for the 49ers, and you should check them out, Debo Samuel, this wide receiver, they use him. They got you know wide receiver runs. He's explosive in the plat in the pass game. This wide receiver is fantastic. And so again, you know, I kind of look at it similarly to the Saints, where George Kittle is going to be the guy that you think is going to beat you all day. I'm actually looking more down the line of a guy like Debo Samuel. If we can't stop the run like we did against the Seattle Seahawks, uh, then by halftime, you know, we're all going to be in a really bad mood. And I'll be thinking about what kind of song I want to use for the season ending montage on Monday. But if we can stop the run, and we can limit massive plays from guys like Debo Samuel and, of course, Kittle. You know, I, 
We're not forgetting about him. I'm just saying that if we can limit those explosive plays and those secondary third role-playing guys that can jump on you, uh, I think we'll be okay. But it starts with stopping the run. Just picture if you if you want to beat Kirk Cousins, what do you want to do? You want to take Dalvin Cook out of the equation, and you want to make mm-hmm. Kirk drop back 35 times and beat you. You make Jimmy G do that, and the Vikings will be uh, will be going to the NFC title game. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, so Nardo, I want to thank you for hopping on and giving dropping some knowledge. It, it it's always fun when the Vikings are relevant in the playoffs. Um, we'll have to do this again real soon. Yeah, anytime, man. You just uh, you let me know, and and I'll join, and we can chat. No, it's awesome. Uh, the bikes, you know, it's. What a difference a week makes where nobody thought that the Vikings could beat the Saints after what they saw in the Monday night game against the Packers. Now, mm-hmm. everybody's pumped up anything is possible. And this is uh, that's the attitude that I'm happy to hear about and, and feel. And this is going to be a very fun week and a fun game on Saturday, uh, even regardless of the outcome. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree. Uh, you have a good week, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yep, take care, man. Bye-bye. That was Eric Norquist of the 9 to Noon Show on KFAN with Paul Allen. He's a producer and uh, an all-around great guy. Um, our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly, to get you set for the uh, national championship game between North Dakota State and James Madison is from the Fargo Forum, uh, Jeff Kolpak. My first question for you is: uh, Was was this year expected? Every every after losing uh, Ethan Stick. Was this year's team, were you expecting them to get back to Frisco? No. <laughs> to give you the one-word answer, I, I was not expecting that. They had too many young players, I guess, and, and, and you hit it right on the head, and especially a quarterback. I don't think you can depend on a freshman quarterback to get you back to Frisco. Um, that being said, uh, there's maybe something about this program that just um you know it it just uh, keeps reinventing itself i guess and i will point to two reasons number one is they don't have a lot of players leave so you have guys sticking around for 2 3 4 years before they even get a shot at the field and there's a certain uh, dedication in that that i think goes unmatched and you know in this day and age too you got to remember in this day and age that a lot of kids, if you're not playing when you're a freshman or right away, they'll tend to just bail on you right away and say, see you later. It's the instant gratification, I think, part of sports. And I think this program has been able to avoid that. So uh, that's number one reason. Number two, they just have talent, you know, and they, they have resources, they have money, um, they have a support, uh, they have the uh, president who is all on board. And you have to have all those things you know, really to have a shot at it. So did I expect it? No, but am I surprised? I'm not. Okay. Uh, 
let's talk a little bit about uh, Trey Lance. Uh, he is more of a right now. He is more of a, a runner, I would say, than than a pure passer. Even though he can he he can swing it. Um, where is he in his development? Do you think? And because he's only a redshirt freshman, so he's going to be around a lot a, a while. Uh, where's where's he at right now in your mind? You know, I I will differ on you on the first point. I don't think he's I think he's fifty fifty. I really do. I he's a good thrower. I mean, he's accurate. He he has twenty eight touchdowns and no interceptions. I mean that that is an accurate passer. So I will say that uh, yeah, he, he, he's six three two twenty five and 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 is a pretty powerful runner. But um, in his development, which is your question. Um, I think he's come farther along and as far as the recognition of, of of defenses and studying defenses and and getting to his check down points and I just think he's much farther along mentally than anybody ever thought he would be at this point. It's hard to when you watch him it's hard to think that he's actually a freshman out there making the calls and what he does. So uh, yeah, I, I think he's or, or, or he's along, he's farther along, put it this way. He's farther along than Carson Wentz was at this stage. He's farther along than Easton Stick was, and he's farther along than Brock Jensen. And all those three guys played pro football. Doesn't mean he's going to be a better pro than Carson Wentz. It doesn't mean that at all. But I'm just saying at this stage of the game, he's farther along. The, the question I get asked a lot on, on the street is, how come every every game is, is a blowout, and how come NDSU can't schedule better competition? What would you say to that? Well, nobody will play them. I mean, none of these FBS teams will play them. Nobody's answering their calls. No, nobody in the MAC will play them. Wisconsin won't play them. Northwestern won't play them. Nebraska will not play them. None of these schools – We'll play him. I mean, that's, that's a simple answer to that question. And the, you know, the question as to all the blowouts, um, I, I think it's a depth thing. Uh, they just have so many players. They're deep. Like I said, they don't. These kids don't leave the program very often. And so, when you get your second, third stringers who have been in the program two, three, four years, you're playing garbage time in the second half. You're not going to like dial it down you want to score Mm -hmm. so um um, that's that that's why you have blowouts is because you have players not only your first string but your your next guys in line are probably better than the other team's starters in in those cases um what do you make of uh the the attendance drop in the playoffs. Is that a complacency thing by uh, some fans in Fargo? Or do you yep. have a different philosophy nope. on what I, I, what the reasoning? I think they've got a little bored, Travis, with it a little bit. I think there's a – and maybe your prior question probably speaks to it better than anything else when you're blowing teams out at halftime and – People just, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they, they, they'd rather see a closer game, I guess. And I don't know. They, they, and I don't care. To me, I don't care. It's 
to the fan, do what you want. I mean, it, it's your dollar. So if, if you got your mm-hmm. your entertainment dollar worth by halftime, and you feel like going to a bar around the dome, and you know one of these many bars around here, and want to hang out there, that, that's your deal. I mean, I, I, you know, nobody's gonna hold you to it that you need to stay there. That's that's your deal. Now, personally, I'm a football guy. I I, I like watching football, whether it's second, third, fourth string guys and freshmen coming up. I want to see it, but that maybe I'm a little different. I'm maybe more of a football guy than some of these fans, but I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, if they want to leave, they want to leave. And But it's a, it's a nationwide problem. I, I've heard this all over the country. I've been on numerous shows where we've talked about this. I mean, Nick Saban was bitching about it. And there's several, I mean, JMU had, had lower attendance, although they're outdoors and the weather wasn't great, but JMU's attendance for the playoffs is down. I think it's down all ever. Maybe I, maybe it's cyclical. I don't know. I mean, you hope it's cyclical. You hope it'll come up eventually. But, I mean, I mean, college football has been on such a peak over the last couple of decades that I think at some point you're going to have, a, you're going to see a little dip in market correction. I would hope it come up eventually here. Yeah. Um, it, it, as a, as a football fan, it I, I I've enjoyed this this run of uh, Bison football. So it's it's a little disappointing to, to for the fans to not enjoy what they're seeing because it's not doesn't happen every day. No, and you know, here's a problem too is, I mean, we're watching, we mean me reporting, but we are watching history before our eyes. It, it's going to turn out to be one of the most dominant programs in college football history. And if they win on Saturday, they may win three more. And it, it will be the all-time most dominant college football program in, in, in NCAA history. Now, here's the deal, though. When you're watching it in front of your eyes, you don't really appreciate that. You don't know that. I mean, I, I, it's hard to live in the moment of a history book because the history book has not been written yet. It'll be written 10, 20 years down the road, and people who are there to see it go, well, yeah, I was there. I was there for that historic title run. I remember Georgia Southern. I remember beating Lehigh, and I remember beating um, – South Dakota State and semifinal. I remember all those games, Northern Iowa. But when you're living in the moment, I don't think it's just na- it's a natural reaction not to appreciate it because uh, history, in a, in essence, hasn't been written yet. You know, you, you write history after mm-hmm. the fact, and so we're we're living in it right now. Um, I just don't think people understand what they're seeing right now. I do. I write. I write sports. I've written a couple books. Mm-hmm. I understand, but. I don't expect people to watch football like I do. Um, I've always been curious about this. For yourself as a, as a journalist, what is the bigger deal in your mind? All the national championships or the FBS wins like over Iowa, Kansas State, Minnesota? What's a bigger deal in, in, in your mind as a journalist? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I've never asked, been asked that question. I would say 
in the moment um as far as uh storylines being an FBS team especially the Gopher games early like nobody ever growing up around here like I did would ever even imagine NDSU even competing on the same stage much as beating them in football to me that's a more compelling storyline beating the Gophers beating Iowa beating Kansas State but long range and historically speaking the, the titles will definitely carry weight because that's what it is those are titles those are those are trophies those are something you write down in not only your own Hall of Fames, but NCAA Hall of Fames and all that stuff. So um, I got two answers. Short-term is the FBS wins. Long-term would be the titles. Okay, let's get to, get to the the game on Saturday against JMU. Um, what does Trey Lance need to do to to pull off another – National title. Well, he's going to have to run the ball. I mean, I, I think the run game, you know, during the year when you're playing some teams you know you're going to beat, I don't think the run game is really in play because, you know, why try to risk getting him hurt? Well, I think that's out the door now. There's no tomorrow, as they say. Mm-hmm. So I think he needs to run for 75 yards, pick up crucial third downs, um, you know, it's going to, as always, title games are a battle of the least turnovers. But this is a defensive game. I, these these two defenses are really good. Jamie is number one in run defense in the country. They give up 61 yards a game, 2.2 yards a carry. NDSU has been a defensive team for this whole run. They're very good again. I think the first team to 20 wins this game. Um, how how does uh, NDSU against a good defense um, able to produce enough offense to get to the 20 points in your mind? Wow, I wish I was all coordinator. I wish I was in those meetings. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if you do misdirection or. or I, I think the first. I think it's going to be a feeling out game for a while. Like I don't see anybody just trying reverses and, and risking misdirection handoffs and all that stuff. Um, I, I think you're going to see these teams play pretty basic football for a while and see who's going to crack first. That's just kind of the, the vibe I get when you got two heavyweights facing each other. You're not going to see Ole Frazier coming out swinging for the fences right in the first round. You know, when you have two heavyweight teams going at it, you're boxers. You don't come out trying for the knockout in the first round if you know your opponent is pretty good. That's just just not smart. So, um, I don't know. We'll we'll see. I I just – I'm not seeing – I'm just – I'm seeing a pretty close, low-scoring game, and it's going to come down to some play here and there like it did again when these teams played in 17, you know, that NDSU won and came back. A couple turnovers hurt JMU, and that was a difference. Um, how would you uh, judge the first year of Matt Entz as the head coach at NDSU? 
couldn't have been better. It, it couldn't have been better. He took controls. He was a D coordinator. Chris Kleiman was a D coordinator. Craig Ball's a D coordinator. They've done the same formula here. Uh, I thought he, you know, there's always some hiccups here and there with time management, which you can't expect for a rookie coach, but uh, he's a straight shooter, uh, even-keeled guy, never uh, never wavered from back and down from questions. I thought, and that's just from my point, but uh, yeah, when you're 15 and 0, what can, what can you say? I mean, it couldn't have gone better. He, he, has, he hasn't coached a loss yet. So think about that. Uh, so I, I don't, I always judge a coach on how they react after a loss. And I'm sure when it comes, he'll be fine. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, pretty smooth for the first year coach. Um, how was he different than, than Chris Kleiman was? Not much, not much. The same philosophy, they're best of friends. Kleiman hired him as D, as D coordinator. And why would you change? I mean, there's when it's not bro. I mean, why, why would you change from what's worked here? Because Kleiman did a lot of the same mm-hmm. thing Craig Bull did. And, you know, they didn't change offense. They didn't change defense. They brought in new coordinators who assimilated to what was working before. So it's not like they brought in a – guy who's going to throw the spread. That's stupid. They actually promoted Tyler Roll, who's run this offense for years. He played in this offense. So, I mean, that's what you do is you, you do what's working. And, and you know, I, I think the best thing they did is they didn't overcoach it. You know, they, they didn't try to do too much. They didn't try to bring in too, too many wrinkles, like, you know, be arrogant about it, like my way is better. And, um, you know, they just kept to the plan. And I, I think that's, to me, their, their best move was the moves they didn't make. And that's, you know, not try to overcoach it. Last question, then I'll get, get you out here. It's a two-part question. The first part is, are you surprised how well Trey Lance did as a freshman? Okay, that's part one. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, am I surprised? Yeah, uh, I'm surprised that, yeah, he's at the level he's at. I, I knew he'd be good. I didn't think he'd be this good this early. Nobody did. Um, you know, it was a battle for him just to get the job with Zeb Nolan, the transfer from Iowa State. So, I, I, yeah, I'm surprised he's at the level he's at. I'll, I'll say that. I'm, I'm a little surprised, but I'm not shocked. I mean, I, I knew he – I thought he'd get there at, at some point. I think all of us didn't think he'd get there this early, and – that's a credit to the kid's maturity. He's, he's, he's vastly image. And, and you can't predict that just, you know, watch and practice. Mm-hmm. But um, he is uh, much more mature and advanced earlier than anybody thought. So that's a surprise. Okay. And the second part. Okay. On, on Saturday, uh, who, uh, who has the advantage in, in your mind going into the game? Are you telling me to pick a winner, Travis? Uh, um, I'm I'm trying to because I know you're going to try to resist. <laughs> I, I I can't pick a winner just yet. I got to wait for my own show. But uh, <laughs> uh, this this game uh, in the Vegas odds makers is called a pick 'em right now. Maybe JMU has a one or two point odds advantage, but uh, there is no advantage whatsoever. I think it's. It's a heavyweight versus heavyweight, and 
this is what you want in a national title game is the best two teams. And these are the best two over the course of the season. If you take their whole body of work from game one to game 12, right? Well, right now, game one to game 15, these are the two best teams bar none in the FCS. And it's not even close to the rest. If you take over the whole gamut of the season. Now, some teams had shots at them. The Bison struggled with a couple, but over the course of an entire season, these two are the best in signing close. So I don't think you can pick a winner right now. Okay. Uh, I, I, I tried. Uh, you have a, a good uh, a good experience. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll have to do this again real soon. My pleasure. Good to see you, sir. Thanks a lot. That was Jeff Kopeck of the Fargo Forum and getting us set for NDSU and James Madison tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. I believe it's on ESPN or it might be ESPN2. Check it out. It's uh, the NDSU is going for their eighth championship in nine years. And uh, in just a second, I'm going to be bringing in Ted Schwarzler to talk about the Miguel Sano signing. So uh, if you're around, tune in. And uh, uh, I'm going to bring Seth Stowe's back on. Seth, how's it going? Oh, way better than earlier. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, uh, it's just fantastic. What's what's your ori- original thoughts? You want to see the money first before you comment? On what? On which part? Uh, the Miguel Sano signing. So for those who have been listening or didn't hear the news, Jeff passed and announced that uh, the Twins have reached an agreement with a three-year extension with a fourth-year option with Miguel Sano. At this time, we don't know what the terms of that deal are, but I'm sure we'll hear sometime soon. Um, I mean, I'm good with it. Um, He definitely came on. He definitely, in the last year and a half, has put in a concerted effort, and you've seen the results now of – him working hard, getting himself back in shape, kind of redefining himself. And to me, the thing that mattered the most in that was, remember when he had that really bad stretch where he struck out like 60% of his at-bats for about a week? And we found out Mm -hmm. that he was making some big changes on the fly. And he made those adjustments within about a week. And from that point forward, he was an amazing hitter. Um, So, I mean, depending on, like you said, depending on the deal specific, We'll see how much we like it, but I mean, another core member of this uh, youth movement that started about four years ago, uh, getting to spend another four years, three or four years here, um, hard to argue with it. 
Yeah, I uh, I'm curious to to also to see what the option number is if that's if that's likely to be picked up or if that's uh, more than likely going to be uh, declined, depending on. I'm sure it all depends on how he does. But uh, well, remember, he could be a free agent after two more seasons. So those last two years are the deal are the years that are buying out his free agency. Those are the ones that should cost more. But just based on where the Twins are in terms of uh, payroll. I would think they'd want to front end it a little bit, maybe pay them a little bit more these first couple of years um, so that they can keep the numbers down going forward so they can continue to add other guys like Barrios or, or other free agents or trade for other young talents or, or that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to bring on Ted Schwarzler to get his uh, comments on, on this. Ted, how's it going? Good. How are you, Travis? I'm excellent. Uh, you're on with Seth Stodes as well of Twins Daily. Uh, what's your initial impressions of Miguel Sano staying with the Twins for, at least for the next four uh, three years? Love it, um, but surprised. I wouldn't have thought he was the um, – I guess, guy of the remaining trio with Barrios and Buxton that um, necessarily needed to be extended. I thought they could have probably gone year to year with him. However, arbitration is kind of weird and nuanced, and it, it's rooted heavily in statistics. So if he's going to keep racking up home runs, that number is only going to drive upwards um, as the next few years go on. So, I mean, um, I would imagine it, it's relatively heavily rooted in uh, their desire to get him to be a more committed ball player over the last year. Um, and then obviously he's going to be pretty integral um, to them in 2020, whether that's playing a new position or um, continuing with the same kind of performance he showed this last year. Uh, Seth, what do you, what do you need to, to see out of Sonoma? to feel like, regardless of the money, that this was uh, a good decision by uh, Thad Levine and Derek Falvey? I mean, the only thing that matters in it uh, is the amount of, of the contract. You can't predict injuries necessarily. You can't predict a lot. Um, you can try, but there's no way of knowing. So, I mean, I thought they might wait. I mean, I'm not surprised they're extending Sano. I thought maybe they would wait to see him either at Twins Fest or, or even at spring training um, or sometime where they actually see him physically. But then again, he's been posting enough on Instagram to see that he's been putting in some work again. Uh, I, think, I think Ted would agree that he's, he's definitely put in some work. He looks strong. He looks, uh, you know, I mean, he's always looked strong. He's just definitely put himself in much better shape because if he's healthy – and if he's in good shape, he's going to hit a lot of home runs, and uh, you know we won't even care about the dollars. Ted, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I would agree. I've I've kind of followed along here and there um, over the course of the off season as far as um, 
you know, his Instagram stories and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, he looks not, I mean, he's not a small guy or anything like that, but he hasn't bulked up um, again or put back on a bunch of weight. I think it was yesterday or the day before he's been posting a bunch about, um, he did some sort of uh, giveaway or he was giving gifts out, I guess, for like a Dominican Christmas or something like that. But in the middle of that, there was a, a workout, a um, couple of videos in there and just watching how a guy his size could be going through. It was like a, a footwork drill um, going through kind of a ladder and then like little mini hurdles step over. Like, I don't know when, when he's, when he's right. And when he's, um, bought into being the player that he can be. He's one of the best hitters in baseball, or the best power hitters in baseball. What? This is for both you guys. What? Uh, let's say the Twins do not add Josh Donaldson and Miguel Sano is at third base. Do you foresee him being able to uh, play that position adequately, or? Should he be at first base? Uh, Ted, let's start with you. I think um, I think that it's it's a loaded situation regardless. I mean, the assumption that he's just going to go over to first base and make it work is is heavy on its own. Um, but I think he's talented and athletic enough to make it work. He's going to obviously have to get used to the position and scoops and the footwork and whatnot. As far as being at third. Um, he's always been pretty limited laterally. He's great coming in on the ball and he's great going back on the ball. Um, he's helped out a lot by how strong his arm is. I think he probably could be hit in there a bit more if the twins had, um, a better defender at short. I think when he's obviously limited laterally, um, you know, going to his left is pretty tough when you have a shortstop that is a bit challenged on range as well because of, you know, his own arm problems. Um, ideally, I think that they have to figure out a way to address um, the infield one way or another. And I think moving him to first is probably the most ideal way to do that, just because I think that there's a better avenue to um, upgrading your third base defense than there is first base. Uh, Seth, what do you think? I think he's already adequate defensively. I mean, if that, I think that's the word you used. Uh, as Ted said, he comes in well. He goes back well. I actually think he goes toward the line pretty well and has the arm, as he mentioned, uh, to make up for that. He does struggle some going to his left. But, again, if he's in better shape and continues to work and get in better shape, that's stuff he can work on too. I'd leave him at third base as long as possible because he's so much more valuable there. Um and then go get like, and then, and I know we learned last week that they haven't necessarily shown interest in Mitch Moreland, but a, a defensive type of first baseman like that, who's very good over there can save a lot of errors too. Um, and obviously I think Moreland can hit the bit too. Uh, he's, he's CJ Crone basically, but um, yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely a challenge as we talked about earlier, the infield defense, I think is largely going to have to be improved in its own uh, the, the individual players are going to have to improve themselves uh, because Polanco's not going anywhere or Rise shouldn't go anywhere but second base. And, you know, unless he moves him over to first, but that just seems like uh, let's keep giving him a chance at third as long as possible, in my opinion. Jumping in there. Uh, 
Sorry, Travis. I just wanted to jump in there quick on Seth's point. I I, I think that's huge, too, is how much, um, you know, they can drive from their own internal performance. Because like Seth said, the up-the-middle defense isn't changing, and I think so much of it uh, really, for better or worse, revolves around Polanco, I think, while Arise has some poor numbers, his numbers are are worse in going towards second base and going towards the hole um, than they are going towards first, which I think is indicative of having to, you know, make up for where the shortstop is positioned and how much Polanco can get to and that kind of thing. So if Polanco can take even, you know, marginal steps forward, I think that that definitely helps both Arias and whoever's playing third base. I mean, the Twins, as constructed, are, are going to have or going to go into the season as one of the lesser infield defensive units. And if Polanco can take even a half step forward, that would be absolutely massive. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts, Ted, on uh... – the Jose Barrios situation, uh, they came in about $300,000 apart. Is that just arbitration, or do you think they'll actually head to arbitration, or could they work work it out? I would certainly hope they'd choose the latter. I mean, it's not some dire situation, obviously, but... $300,000 for the guy that's probably considered your ace is it, it just seems inconsequential. It shouldn't matter. Um, I know that Darren Wolfson um, has been talking for about a year now that um, the two sides have, you know, exchanged numbers and tried to go back and forth on some contract talk, but they've been so far apart. And obviously if, you know, they're struggling through this and on an arbitration um situation where it's a one-year contract that's pretty indicative of that but yeah I I would prefer to not see them go to a hearing over that little amount Um, I know that this front office isn't afraid of of walking away from the table and just going to a hearing Um, and obviously you know Kyle Gibson I think after the fact uh, described it as being awkward or something like that but not um not, uh, I guess, negative or hurtful or anything like that, but that doesn't mean that every situation like this um, goes that smoothly. I mean, essentially, when you're when you're doing that, you're you're tearing down the argument of the other side, and if there's a feeling of scorn or whatever um, going into it, it's not really worth driving that extra wedge in there if you don't have to. Uh, let me uh, jump on top of that. Uh, is Barrios the next guy that you would like to see them work out uh, an extension with, or is there someone else that you have in mind? I would have thought he would have been the one that they would have done first. Um, he's probably the biggest hurdle because I think he's going to cost the most. Um, he'll clear. He would obviously clear a Max Kepler deal. Um, or Polanco from last year, I would imagine he'll clear or he would need to clear whatever um, Sano got. But I guess, you know, if they're content at that $4 million mark, maybe they just aren't interested at this point in, in paying, you know, that higher amount 
to to extend him. But yeah, I mean, I I think he makes the most sense um, to lock up as long as they believe that he is continuing to trend forward. Um, the strikeouts were down a bit last year. The walks were up a little bit, I think. Um, but his FIP was better. Um, his ERA was better. He's an August slash September away from being a Cy Young contender. So if they think he can get there, yeah, that's a guy I would for sure lock up. Yeah, he's someone. Okay, go ahead. You made the comment that you would have thought that they would have wanted to sign him first. I mean, I would, I would think they did want to sign him first, but obviously he values himself quite highly. Whereas they were able to get Blanco and Kepler done. Now they've gotten Sano done. I'm sure they're still working diligently every day or every week to try to get Barrios locked up, but it does take two sides, and Barrios is going to want more than Nola and Severino got a year ago, and maybe he should. But, you know, I'm sure they'd love to have him signed by now. But, yeah, I don't don't think we can blame the team, and I'm not saying you are. I I think a lot of people think that the Twins are trying to be cheap in this, but they're also trying to get a fair deal. Yeah, and I think that at, uh, kind of to digress a little bit or not get off that topic, but I think that that gets thrown around in arbitration too in general is, you know, the team files here and the player files here and, okay, the team's trying to save some money. Well, no, they're both working off projection systems and valuing things differently. So, I mean, it's it's a blind negotiation until you get to a certain point. So it's not like the team is just saying, no, we don't think you're worth an extra $10,000 kind of thing. Um, and I think that gets lost, uh, especially, you know, on a day like today where you have John Heyman tweeting out all of these arbitration values. Um, you just see numbers as opposed to realize there's nuance or it's actual discussion. Yeah, I, I I think Barrios wants to be a twin. Uh, I, I think that can't be lost on Twins fans that this is about money. This isn't about uh, a comfort level or or him not wanting to be here. Would you guys agree with that, that, that this is just really about money? I just think it was silly to hear the response on Twitter. And of course, hashtag twins Twitter is never necessarily the best place to get, to get your uh, thoughts or opinions necessarily. But I just thought it was funny that people were so overreacting to the twins and Barrios not coming to a deal when that happens every year. I mean, you look at George Springer, asking for $22.5 million from the Astros, and the Astros offering 17 and a half. That's the kind of thing that could make things difficult in a year. Right. But, I mean, you know, it's just so funny that people overreacted when we didn't know anything. I mean, we didn't know anything until we saw the numbers, and then when we see the numbers, it's like, oh, okay, no big deal. Right, and really it's, it's even if the numbers would have came out right away, it's not even a big deal. Um, until, you know, you go to that arbitration point. If that never happens, then who cares? And something else that I look at is there's time to to get a deal done, whether even if it doesn't happen 
this off season, it, it, it just will cost the Twins more money. But there's three years left to get him signed to a long-term contract. And uh, the only difference is it will cost the Twins more money if they if they wait. If Barrios continues to put up similar or better numbers. Right. Yeah, ultimately, I'm, that's the risk. Barrios can take the risk of waiting to become a free agent. And I've, I've said it before today, and I've said it other days, he should look at that Zach Wheeler five-year, hundred and whatever million dollar deal and say, hey, I'm, I'm better than he is. I could get that kind of a deal or more in three years. But on the other side, he can say, hey, I can get guaranteed money over the next four or six, whatever years it is, and not have to worry about potential decline or arm issues. If he has Tommy John, you know, he doesn't get that contract. So right. I mean, there's definitely risk. It's not just automatic that everyone should or should not sign a deal. I know, Ted, you and I have gone back and forth, especially a year ago when Acuna signed that $100 million deal. He gets hurt. He's not getting that money. So I don't blame a guy ever for signing a, a, a fair market deal to avoid any of that risk. But I think it's you can also understand the other side. I think it's probably a bit more nuanced for a hitter or a bit less risky for a hitter than probably Absolutely. a pitcher. Um, so Barrios has that to consider, obviously, as well. I, I guess I was going to bring up Acuna, too. I think I struggled with the sense that um, I don't – think it's close to fair market value I mean he's he's on a trajectory to be you know blitzing by that much sooner but the sentiment remains like he's made nothing he was making 500,000 whatever yeah I mean how how are you going to tell a guy that gets offered an immediate hundred million dollars no you're silly for doing that I mean take the security if you want it hmm when it comes to Burrito, too, I want to ask you guys about this. Is the way he works out in the offseason, is that a detriment to him later in the season? Because look at last year, he kind of faded in the second half. Do you, do you think? his workouts are a detriment or is that just a coincidence? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know that anything he's doing is a detriment. I would imagine the twins maybe, um, you know, outlined a a training plan that is focused more on um, endurance and uh, like keeping him in a, in a similar situation as the, as the year goes on, I mean, obviously you're not going to be as fresh in August and September as you are earlier in the year, but if they do believe that, you know, it's a breakdown sort of thing or a, um, an endurance or struggle uh, as the year goes on, I'm sure that they've, you know, tailored things to that. Yeah, we haven't seen the the workout videos on his Instagram or other social media places this year. And that's not to say he doesn't um, still do them. Um, I would guess, though, that with Ian Kadish there last year, I I would guess they spent a lot of time talking about it with him and with Baldelli in the front office um, to come up with a plan 
that he can still work out at the, at the same group that he has been for all these years, but maybe individualizing it a little bit more to him or maybe having him start a little bit later or maybe just completely having him not pick up a baseball or whatever the case is. I'm sure they, they did spend some time talking to him. That said, I, I think it's a logical excuse, but it doesn't necessarily in my mind. It's not necessary necessarily just because he works out really hard in the off season that he got tired for that stretch. It could be something completely different. And I don't know that we'll ever really know that for sure. Um, let's uh, get away from uh, arbitration. Ted, how would you rate the the Twins off season from uh, being that there's six weeks until uh, spring training compared to to uh, previous off seasons under? Felvey and uh, Levine. I mean, I think you have to evaluate them all separately because of the situations that you're dealing with and what's ahead of you and what you're coming from. Um, I would say, I think you and I have talked this off season. I would grade them a C right now, but I think that, you know, one of the biggest things or most important things you noted there is that there's still six weeks left and, um, as frustrating and as drawn out as this Josh Donaldson thing is, um, that has the ability to be a linchpin of sorts in swinging that from a C to a B plus or an A minus. I think that they still obviously have to figure out um, a situate or uh, an answer at first base and third base, one of those two. And then I still think they need a pitcher, and I think that that pitcher should be um, Odorizzi or better. Um, I've thought you know, that could come through a trade all along. Maybe we start to see the trade market pick up now that we have some of these arbitration figures out of the way. Um, Maybe the twins are more keen to take on salary in a pitching trade. um, If they lose out on Josh Donaldson, I'm not real sure what their, um, I guess, end game is at this point, but I think that they know that they're, they're still a ways away from, being where they want to be. I know they've walked back some comments about impact pitching and using the word impact and that kind of thing, but I I don't genuinely think that this front office wants to go into the season settling on Marwin Gonzalez being their first baseman or settling on, you know, using some of their depth pitchers on their opening day roster. I think Marwin's capable of being a first baseman, but I think it takes away a lot of his um, value that he can play all over the place for you and spell guys. Um, and then I also think, uh, I also think that, um, not having a pitcher and just saying, you know, Dobnak or Thorpe go out there, Smeltzer, I don't think that that's where they want to be. Um, and not to, uh, digress, but John Heyman did just tweet out that the snow deal is 30 million over three years. Oh okay, man, so I guess three twenty seven, but that three million club option for the fourth, I was actually kind of right. Yeah, because you had fifteen million, didn't you, for the fourth year? I did. And then a one million buyout, so they went fourteen million for the fourth year with a three million buyout. Yeah, the difference in what I thought versus what they thought is I had a million dollar buyout and they had a 
$3 million buyout, which basically means you're going to accept it unless he's just terrible. That's actually a good deal. I really like it. <laughs> Travis, can I ask Ted a couple of questions about what he just responded yeah. to about the offseason? So, Ted, here's yeah. a question that I've kind of had in my head, and I think I may have mentioned it maybe earlier in Travis's previous podcast, but what do you think Twins fans' reaction to signing Rich Hill for the exact contract that he got if they would have done that at the winter meetings instead of kind of toward the end of uh, December? It's interesting how that works out, isn't it? I mean, timing, I think, is so much, and I think – you know, if uh, if Josh Donaldson would have been done by now or wouldn't have taken this long, you'd have less consternation about where he's coming from or where the team is with that, having things drawn out. I mean, Rich Hill, I think Rich Hill um, fits the mold of impact pitching. I mean, he's a great pitcher. The problem is, is he going to be healthy enough to pitch? Um but I think the other thing that I can't remember, I want to say I tweeted it out around the time of him signing, but he's being paid something like $3 million with an ability to make up to like nine or 12 million. I mean, if you're going to pay a guy nine to 12 million to pitch from what June, July through the rest of the season, you think they're a pretty darn good pitcher. I mean, over the course of a full year, that's 15, 16, 17 million. So you obviously have bought in highly on him. It's not like they went and got some scrap heap guy. So that's, that's my point is Rich Hill's really good. Now we don't necessarily know he's going to be back in June. Um, they're saying he'll be rehabbing by May. I think June is aggressive. Even if he's back in August, suddenly in October uh, starting rotation is pretty good. I also agree with you in the sense that you had made the comment that if they do go out and trade for a pitcher, it should be Odorizzi or better. And, I mean, there aren't very many names. To me, David Price and, and Chris Sale do nothing because their elbows are worse than, you know, someone who just had Tommy John surgery in the last month. And uh, But, you know, uh, John Gray is obviously the name we've all brought up many times. We don't even know if he's available or what the cost would be, but that's that's the kind of name. Otherwise, honestly, I would rather just go with Dobnik and Thorpe because at least those guys have some potential. Dobnik did a nice job down the stretch, and Thorpe does. I know Nick Nelson wrote an article saying with his ability to miss bats, he's got potential. In my mind, Bruce yeah. Gratterall should be involved in that, and that's my next question is where do you see Gratterall fitting into the picture to start the season and as the season goes on based on everything yeah. we know today. I, I hate to discredit um, Dominic because I don't think he's a, a scrub or a bad pitcher, just this quad A guy. Um, obviously they saw something in him, picked him out and it worked and he pitched really well. I think he should be given every opportunity to continue adding depth um, to their rotation. I really like Lewis Thorpe. Um, I think he has the chance to be a three starter, a four starter, somebody pretty pretty good. Um, and he's not just a soft tossing lefty flop, uh, flipping up flops. So yeah, I think he is is a very good arm, and I would like to see him pitch his way into a role rather than um, necessarily be just there at opening day, unless he goes out and just dominates in spring training and earns it. 
Um, I, I think Gratterall, I, I'm beginning to, um, I don't want to say worry more that he is a reliever, but I think that he looked great as a reliever last year, and that volatility is obviously significant um, for somebody like that. I would like to see him start at AAA and get every opportunity to start. Um, but if they're going to be a, a postseason team again, I think he's got to be on the roster um, at the end of the year, even if he's not capable of being a starter. So that means he goes back to the bullpen. Um, you know, maybe that's his future role. Maybe it's not. I think we're quite a ways from deciding that. But I would I would think he would start the year at AAA, um, building up innings, building up length, trying to start. Yeah, I, I wrote yeah. earlier that I'd like to see him up in the big leagues the whole year. I just, you know, with, with his injury history, I'd much rather his innings go in the big leagues rather at AAA at this point. And I know he's only 21, but, you know, before they signed Hill and Bailey, I, I thought that using him as a primary with an opener ahead of him made a lot of sense. Now with the Hill situation, I'd, I'd almost rather him just be a starter until Hill gets back and then see where his innings are. If he's around 100 innings, move him to the bullpen right away then and, and feel good about where he's at. He'll probably end at 120, 130 by the end of the year. That's what I do. I just, I'd be worried about really wasting like innings in Rochester. Yeah, I like that. Um, I like that plan or that blueprint for Gratterall. I think he'll give you an opportunity to almost be like a, like a Band-Aid for your rotation in August. Is, is Jose Brio slumping? Hey, here's Rich Hill. Is Bruce Argraderall reaching an innings limit and getting tired? Here's Rich Hill. That kind of thing. I like that. Uh, last question for you, Ted, and then I'll let you go. Uh, do you think they're going to add another pitcher, or is that wishful thinking? I think that they will make a trade. I think that there's too many guys either on the 40-man, close to the 40-man, redundancies in their minor league system that they have opportunity to make an impactful trade. I think those things, it it takes time for them to come together. Like Seth mentioned, John Gray is a name I would love to go get. I mean, you just now know what he's going to make this year. He just agreed to arbitration today. Um so you have to feel out that market. You have to figure out: Are you ready to move um, move pieces? Are you are you certain on what piece you need back? Are you certain on what position you need back? I don't think that they make a trade for a position player. I just don't see that being a huge um, fit. I mean, anyone they they could need on the on the lineup card, they could probably go get yet in free agency some sort of way. So I think that the trade ends up being for a pitcher, and I, I would hope that they're targeting um, pitchers that are at that Odorizzi level or higher because I don't think making a, a trade for somebody below that would cost much of anything, and I'm not sure that that would benefit them anyway. If if they were to trade for a fourth or fifth starter, what, what benefit does that have over – allowing Lewis Thorpe or Randy Dobnik to have those innings. I don't think there is one. Uh, Ted, I want to thank you for uh, coming on. It, it's uh, a busy night, but uh, appreciate we were able to find a way to get you on the show. Uh, it's been a 
one of those weeks for me, and I appreciate your patience. So uh, we'll have to do this again real soon. No problem. Thank you, guys. Yep, thanks a lot. Yep. All right. My name is Travis Elney. I'm the host of uh, Minnesota Sports Weekly. This is episode 106B. And uh, I'm joined by a guest co-host for the evening, uh, Seth Stowes from Twins Daily. Seth, how's uh, how's the handbook coming? Uh, slowly. But... Thankfully, I've got a few people doing a little editing for me, kind of reviewing it. Uh, maybe I'll have to send it to you to find some uh, grammar and spelling and other mistakes for me. But I'd really like to have it done and, and hopefully available by the end of the weekend. Um, what is your thoughts on – I asked you this the other night, and I'm kind of curious. I want everybody to to hear your answer what is your thoughts on the decision to limit Twins Fest to two days instead of three and uh, the caravan to a week instead of two weeks? I mean, I think it's disappointing from a fan perspective, especially the caravan that would bring players and personalities out um, all over the region in northern Minnesota. Um Eastern North Dakota, South Dakota, Northern Iowa, all around Minnesota. Um, I think a lot of people really look forward to that, so it's disappointing. Um, and then Twins Fest, again, I haven't been there on Sundays to know whether or not um, there were a lot of people there, how it played out on Sundays. But, you know, again, it's one less day that uh, fans get an opportunity to, to rub elbows with their player, with the players and things like that. But, yeah, it's, it's disappointing, but I'm sure there's – some good reason and logic for that. Okay. Uh, before we are joined by uh, Christopher Gates to talk Vikings, I wanted to ask you, now that we saw the numbers, what is your impression of the, the Sano contract? I mean, it's fantastic. It was right where I would have guessed. So, I, you know, probably $9 million <laughs> about a year. He was supposed to make between five and six million this year. I'd like to think they'll bump that up this year and then lower it over the next couple of years. Um, and then a fourteen million dollar option with a three million dollar buyout for that fourth year seems very realistic, uh, very positive. If he's putting up great numbers to get that kind of money, I mean, well, it tells you he's done good things over the last few years. So hopefully he makes it easy for them to decide to pick up that option. Yeah, I uh, I'm I'm ecstatic about it because I'm one of the few people that have stuck with uh, Miguel Sano because there's some people that are when he was uh, out of shape and and, and such kind of jumped off the bandwagon and I uh, I, I, I sit down and. Uh, uh, and I'm just glad that he's taken it his uh his fitness seriously and and uh is able to last year hitting thirty four home runs was a a good sign 
What's what's the future hold for him in, in your opinion? Well, the fact that the twins were willing to do this tell you that they believe in his future and his work ethic now and things like that. So I mean it's no reason not to believe that he can be a power hitting slugger and, and hopefully get back to a couple more all star games and you know, challenge for forty home runs every year and and uh hopefully be a representative player and person off the field as well. Um, you know, that's all still be, to be determined, but the fact that this front office and, you know, certainly I think uh, his relationship hopefully with Rocco Baldelli, with Rudy Hernandez and Luz as well, hopefully that all helps factor into him making those changes and, and uh, continuing to push himself to be great. Because, uh, you know, when he was in the minor leagues, there was no question. He didn't want to just be a good ball player. He wanted to break records. He wanted to hit a ton of home runs and, and hopefully he can not only have that desire back, but to continue putting in the work to get there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think I asked you this on uh, the other night, but I wanted to ask you this again. Uh, in your mind, are the twins the clear favorites in the central or is it up in the air? Um, I think they're the favorite. I don't know that they're clear favorites. Um, I think the White Sox have had a nice off season, but you know, you always hear it. The teams that win in the off season don't necessarily win during the season, but they've made themselves very competitive. And with that young, talented core that they've developed over the last few years, guys like Luis Roberts and, uh, Nick Madrigal on the way up to join the likes of Yohan Moncada and Tim Anderson and, and Eloy Jimenez and now Yasmani Grandel and, and, uh, you know, Dallas Keiko and the pitching staff has Michael Kopech coming back sometime this year to go with Lucas Giolito and they've added Dallas Keiko. So, I mean, they've had a very nice off season. They've got a very good core and they've really supplemented it well. But I think the Twins, even with their less than exciting deals, have, have made themselves a better team and um, still have a ton of talent in that core. And, and with guys they've picked up the last couple of years that, yeah, I certainly still think they're the favorite. And frankly, if Cleveland doesn't trade Lindor and they don't trade Clevenger and they've got Bieber, I mean, that's still going to be a really good team. And, and I think that makes the AL Central pretty pretty solid if you look at, look at just those top three. Uh, yeah, Detroit and Kansas City are probably going to be really bad, but there's three really good teams in that AL Central, I think. Okay, uh, Seth, I want to let's uh, hop on with uh, Christopher Gates of the Daily Norseman, who I think is the best uh, Vikings uh, publication when it comes to blogs. And uh, as we get ready for the 49ers game, I know you're a Vikings fan. So let's bring on Christopher Gates and uh, talk some football. Chris, how's it going? Hey, Travis, it's going all right. Thanks for the uh, kind words. And it's been a while since we've gotten to talk about Vikings, hasn't it? I know. I was, I was thinking when I when I asked you, it has to be at least a year since since we talked, and I, I'm I glad that I, I want to say that we talked around 
draft time back in April, but I'm not 100% sure, but I, I thought we talked about the draft, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, uh, now the Vikings have uh, a, a huge playoff game Saturday afternoon in San Francisco, well, in Santa Clara against the 49ers. Um, what what are a couple of keys in your mind that the Vikings need to do if they're going to have a chance in the fourth quarter? Well, the first thing they need to do on Saturday afternoon is play with the same intensity that we saw in New Orleans on Sunday afternoon. Because if you remember the last time the Vikings came off a big emotional playoff victory, they went out the next week and got hammered by the Eagles on national television in the uh, NFC championship game. And we don't want to see a repeat of that. So the uh, intensity needs to stay uh, where it was. And, you know, I think a lot of the game on Saturday is going to be uh, keyed on a lot of the same things we saw uh, on Sunday against New Orleans. They have to get after uh, Jimmy Garoppolo the way they got after Drew Brees. I mean, Brees never really got comfortable last Sunday, and that played a big role in the uh, the Vikings winning. And they need to have that uh, balance on offense. They need to keep uh, Dalvin Cook going and work in Alexander Madison uh, when he uh, needs a little bit of a break. And uh, Kirk Cousins, now that it looks like he might finally have the monkey off of his back, needs to uh, continue what we saw on Sunday in New Orleans. And, you know, I think they have a real shot this week, but, you know, they can't come out flat and they need to, uh, they need to stay balanced. And hopefully those things will happen. Mr. Gates, this is Seth Stone from Quincy. Uh, appreciate talking to you here. I, I want to just throw this at you and get your thoughts. Now, I think we all agree the 49ers defense is fantastic, led by, I think, Nick Bosa probably. Um, but their offense, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo's had a nice season, but he seems more of a game manager, kind of what we think Kirk Cousins can be. Gets those third down completions, things like that. Their running backs are good, but I wouldn't put them in the upper class. The receivers are good and, and have some speed, but aren't necessarily all pros. Why, aside from the defense, what, what should the Vikings really be focusing on as they're looking at that 49ers offense? George Kittle. Uh, George Kittle is, quite, is probably the best tight end in the National Football League. He, uh, he is going to be the primary target a lot of the uh, afternoon for Garoppolo. I mean, they do have some guys on the outside, like you said, like uh, Debo Samuel and uh, Emmanuel Sanders. But uh, that offense kind of runs through George Kittle, and, you know, he has the ability to catch. He, I believe he leads the National Football League in uh, average yards after the catch, so he's tough to bring down. And, yeah, he's, uh, he's basically the key to that 49ers offense, I think. I don't think the Vikings are going to be able to 100% stop him, but if they can keep him contained – that's uh, going to make things a lot tougher on uh, Handsome Jimmy and company. I'd like to follow up, okay. Travis, if you don't mind. Travis, okay. can I follow up on that one? I yep, think Eric Kendrick ahead. has done a really, really good job throughout the year of being a guy that can cover a lot of tight ends. And that's not to say George Kittle is like any other tight end. He's he's probably the best in the NFL at that position, I, maybe not even probably. But Kendrick's clearly not 100%. So do you have a sense, is it, is it going to be Sandejo? Is it going to be a lot of zone? How do you think they're able to even try to to uh, cover Kittle, or is it 
kind of like they did with Michael Thomas last week and just let the zone figure itself out and, and hope that the line gets some rush. I, I think you're going to see a lot of what we saw last week, as you mentioned with uh, Michael Thomas. I mean, Michael Thomas was setting records this year for uh, most receptions in a season. It seems like he gets 11 or 12 catches every game and he was really quiet against Minnesota in that uh, wild card round. So, yeah, I mean, it would be nice if Kendrick was a hundred percent and we could try to match him up with Kittle the majority of the time, but I don't think we're going to have the ability to do that. Uh, if the Vikings do play man, uh, Kittle might see Kendricks. He might see uh, either Anthony Harris or Harrison Smith. He might even see some Xavier Rhodes uh, every once in a while as well. And, you know, with the Vikings being shorthanded in the secondary again, since they put uh, Mackenzie Alexander on injured reserve this afternoon, his season's officially over. Uh, they're going to have to rely a lot on guys like Sendejo and Harris and, you know, the the guys that they have left there to uh, to kind of keep this offense contained. Okay, uh, I'm I'm kind of curious. Looking at the the roster for the Vikings, uh, who is left in that secondary? Uh, you got Rhodes and Waynes. Who is going to? Uh, 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 Javon Curtis is not going to play. Um, nope. And who who are we looking at to? Uh, Stop the Debo Samuels and uh, Emmanuel Sanders. I don't know if he's going to play. I know he's a little gimpy as well. Uh, who who are some of the guys that that we'll be counting on? Well, last week, uh, as we've already talked about, Sendejo played a lot of the nickel snaps uh, with Rhodes and Waynes in their usual spots on the outside with uh, Mackenzie Alexander and Mike Hughes gone. Uh, if the Vikings need someone a little quicker, I mean, we might be looking at someone like Chris Boyd uh, matching up with the guys in the slot. Uh, I don't have the roster in front of me at the moment myself, so I'm trying to think of who else is left. I know they brought uh, Nate Metters from the practice squad onto the uh, roster, but he hasn't been active all year. I don't think he's a guy you can count on at this point. But, yeah, I mean, you got Rhodes, Waynes, Sandejo, uh, the safeties, and Smith and Harris. And, yeah, after that, like I said, I think you're looking at uh, Chris Boyd and Nate Metters. And, yeah, it's going to be trial by fire by those two guys if they are called into action here. So, yeah, we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that uh, nothing happens to any of those primary five guys because, you know, those are matchups the Niners can probably exploit if we get down to uh, Boyd and Metters and that part of the secondary. What do you think it'll take for Kirk Cousins to overcome these ridiculous narratives about him being unwilling, unable to win big games on the road now that he's done it two or three times this year with a good team around him? I mean, at this point, as soon as they lose, you have to assume that he's going to take all the blame for not being able to win the big game, despite the fact that, one, quarterback wins is kind of silly, and two, um, he's done it. He's done it a couple times already this year. So, Maybe my question is a little long-winded and, and multi-part, but do you think the uh, narrative is still there? And is it possible ever for him to overcome that minus a Super Bowl championship? 
unfortunately, and Cousins is having a heck of a season, and he seems like a really decent guy and whatnot, but, you know, there is just a certain segment of the media that no matter what this guy does, they're just going to keep moving the goalposts further and further and further. Uh, I, yeah. said, uh, I said the other day on Twitter that uh, I was relatively certain that, excuse me, that there's no quarterback in the National Football League that gets more blame for his team's losses and less credit for his team's victories uh, than Kirk Cousins does because, you know, it doesn't matter how the Vikings lose, whether they give up a ton of points or whether they – you know, lose close games or low-scoring games. It always seems to come back to Kirk Cousins being responsible for the loss. And, you know, absent, you know, making a run, you know, maybe if he beats the Niners this weekend, it kind of goes away a little more. Uh, Maybe if they make a run to the Super Bowl or even win the Super Bowl, it finally completely disappears. But like you said, short of that, I mean, people are going to keep citing that contract as if, you know, the contract he got was what the Vikings needed to do at the time at the quarterback position. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, it's pretty obvious that they made the right move there, but yeah, I I don't know what it's going to take to get this narrative to officially die. I think it should be dead already, but I'm biased, obviously. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see if the rest of the uh, media catches on here a little bit. It's kind of funny how the, the, uh, the narrative when it comes to the Vikings has changed even from a week ago because in the pregame show, I saw they were picking New Orleans by 17 points, 14 points. And now uh, this week I saw some guys actually picking the Vikings to win. So my long-winded question is, is this uh, a very is is this going to be a tougher game for the Vikings or more winnable in your opinion? I I think it's probably going to be a little tougher. I mean, obviously you're dealing with the short week. Uh, the Vikings played on Sunday, and now they have to get one less day of rest. Play on Saturday, fly out to the West Coast. Uh, obviously, the Niners have gotten a week off. They've been able to use that to get themselves healthy, to get themselves rested up a little bit. Uh, their crowd is going to be pretty uh, frantic out there in uh, Santa Clara. And, I mean, obviously, the crowd in New Orleans is always uh, rowdy. But, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a little more difficult just because, you know, because of that extra rest the Niners have gotten, uh, because of a little bit uh, less rest that the Vikings have had. And like we said earlier, maybe they still have a a bit of a hangover from the big victory in New Orleans. I hope not because, like I said earlier, the last time they had a hangover after a big, exciting playoff victory, they went out and got stomped the next week. So uh, hopefully they'll uh, they'll remain focused and, uh, yeah, get get the job done this Sunday. Or Saturday, rather, not Sunday. Another... Explain the question here for you, but you know it really seems like the uh, Vikings' offensive line struggled early in the year, and then kind of were, went almost unnoticed for the middle portion of the year. And then they had the rough game, of course, against Green Bay. What have you seen from this offensive line? Um, have you seen improvement from Garrett Bradbury, from Pat Elfline? Um, are there guys, maybe Brian O'Neill, that you feel more comfortable with? What is the current state of the Vikings offensive line and and how do you think it can handle, you know, a defensive line like the 49ers or should they get 
to play the Packers again. I think Bradbury has gotten better over the course of the year. Um, he's had his struggles, obviously. We saw the rough game against Green Bay, as you said, where he just got beaten up and down the field for most of the night. Um, but I think he was pretty clearly a, a solid pick for the Vikings, and he's uh, once he gets a couple of seasons in a National Football League strength and conditioning program, he's going to be uh, even better as we go along. He's got the movement skills. He's got the agility to get downfield on screens and get to the second level and whatnot. So uh, I'm pretty high on him still. Um, I'm, I'm really high on Brian O'Neill. I think he's developing into one of the best right tackles in football. Uh, he's going to continue to be a cornerstone of this offensive line. Elf line has been really hit or miss. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, if the Vikings want to continue along the offensive line this offseason, if you look at the five guys who currently start for them, I think he's the one that's probably the most easily replaced. Uh, I think uh, Riley Reef has been solid, if not spectacular, at left tackle. And we talked about Bradbury and O'Neill. And Josh Klein has been a pretty underrated signing as well, as long as he's not dealing with uh, concussion issues. But, yeah, I think a combination of just the, the addition of talent and the scheme that uh, Rick Dennison and Gary Kubiak and company brought in this year uh, has allowed this offensive line to be significantly better than what we've seen in past years. They're still not a great offensive line, but they're not among the worst in the league anymore either, I don't think. Um, speaking of uh, the Vikings offense, uh Kevin Stefanski is a finalist with the Browns. It was revealed tonight, uh, even though most people think it's going to go to Josh McDaniels. But with the Browns, you, you really never know. Um, if Stefanski leaves, do they? Do you think Gary Kubiak would, would step into the offensive coordinator's spot, or could the Vikings be looking for somebody else? Like uh, Pat Shermer or, or 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 someone of that ilk. Um, I'm not sure if Gary Kubiak would step into that role because I think he said he's basically done uh, coaching. I mean, I don't know if he meant just as a being a head coach when he said that, but uh, his son Clint Kubiak is on the staff, and uh, he could be someone that could potentially uh, jump in as well. I mean, obviously, he spent years learning from his dad, and you know he's been around uh, been around the league a while. Um, we'll have to see how things work with Stefanski because if you remember back, I think we put something up about this a little while ago. Uh, it turned out that uh, when the Browns were looking for a coach last year, that uh, Stefanski was one of the two finalists, along with uh, Freddie Kitchens, who they wound up hiring. And apparently, everything that the uh, Brown's personnel staff uh, was telling ownership said that uh, Stefanski was the best choice for the job. And then they went ahead and hired Freddie kitchens anyway. So uh, Stefanski's getting another shot at it. Is, is he going to get the job? I don't know. I don't know how Josh McDaniel still gets considered for head coaching jobs after what he pulled with uh, Indianapolis <laughs> a couple of years ago, but uh, people are still pretty enamored with him apparently. And, you know, the Browns are the only head coaching vacancy left. All the other teams that fire their coaches have hired someone already so they can wait as long as they want. And, you know, I don't know if the performance tomorrow is going to affect his chances or anything. But, yeah, if, if the Vikings 
do lose Stefanski, I guess they could look at Pat Shermer again, or they could look at uh, Clint Kubiak, or maybe they could talk Gary Kubiak into being the offensive coordinator again. It's something we'd uh, have to deal with when it happens. Where are they at from a health standpoint? Uh, any updates that you've heard on either uh, Adam Thielen or I guess that's the main injury, so to speak, of the guys that we know that are are already not considered out, like J. Ron Curse, et cetera. Is he okay? Have we heard anything about Diggs' health uh, in terms of ability to play tomorrow? Uh, according to the injury report, Diggs was a full participant in practice on Thursday after he missed those couple of days with the illness, so I'm sure he's good to go. Uh, Thielen apparently got his foot stepped on uh, in practice on Wednesday, and that required stitches, uh, which is why he was limited. Uh, they were trying to make sure the stitches like didn't come out and whatnot, so uh, he was the only other person on the injury report that was listed uh, with any sort of injury designation. Uh, obviously, Mackenzie Alexander was listed as out, and as we've mentioned, J. Ron Curse has been down downgraded to out already. So, uh, aside from Thielen and his potential issues that I don't think are going to be issues at all, I'm about 95% certain he's going to play. So, other than that, they didn't give anyone a injury designation. Uh, Dalvin Cook appears to be healthy again. Alexander Madison's healthy again. Uh, Afadi Odenigbo has been dealing with the hamstring issue, but. Uh, he wasn't even listed as questionable this week. So I think the Vikings are about as healthy as you can expect from a team that's played uh, 17 football games already this year. Um, my last question, and then uh, we'll let you, let you go. Uh, is this game, uh, what's it going to com- come down to? Like, if you had to say, if the Vikings do this, they'll win. If they don't do this, they'll lose. Um, basically, the, the same thing a lot of games come down to is whether or not the Vikings can get off the field on third downs. Um, they did a very good job of that against New Orleans last week. I believe New Orleans was only four out of 11 on third down. Uh, that allowed them to Uh, kind of dominate the time of possession, allowed them to keep the opposing offense off the field, allowed them to control the flow of the game. And if they can do that again on uh, Saturday afternoon here and uh, limit the 49ers offense a little bit, I think that would be the biggest key for them to uh, come out of this one with a win. Uh, Seth, do you have uh, one last question? Well, I was going to ask him – whether or not he acknowledges that uh, Kyle Rudolph did, in fact, push off uh, while getting held. So, uh, no, I'm not going to bring that question up. Uh, the last question I, I have um, it is about Rudolph, though. Um, obviously, to me, and, and tell me if this is a bad take, but I tweeted after that play um, something to the effect of it was clear last offseason how much it was important to him to stay in a Vikings uniform, to stay here, not necessarily to take a ton less money, but he was clearly, everything about it was about staying here and all the work he does in the community. Early in the year, he didn't get a lot of touches, but he stayed with it. He never made a hassle. How good did you feel for Kyle Rudolph with all of that in the background to be the one that made that catch, to to be standing there with the ball in his hand and have the teammates jumping on him? Um, and to get this week is kind of the star again. Um, I, I personally feel really good about that. 
Am I overplaying that a little bit? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think uh, think if I remember right, the only person uh, on the Vikings roster right now that's been with the Vikings longer than Kyle Rudolph is uh, Everson Griffin. I think Griffin was drafted in 2010, and Rudolph was part of the uh, 2011 class. So uh, Rudolph's been in Minnesota for a long time. Uh, he's seen a lot of good stuff. He's seen plenty of bad stuff, too. And, yeah, to, to see him be the guy, as much as I love Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen and Dalvin Cook and all the dynamic weapons the Vikings have on offense, it was pretty outstanding and pretty awesome to see him uh, catch that last pass where he didn't push off, by the way. I just wanted to, uh, to throw that out there. But, yeah, it was pretty <laughs> awesome to see him uh, be the guy that uh, that took the Vikings to a uh, victory on uh, last Sunday. And, yeah, like you said, he didn't get a lot of touches earlier in the year, and he uh, stuck with it, didn't complain, uh, mm-hmm. did an outstanding job as a blocker. I think he's blocking better than he ever has. But, uh, yeah, he it was pretty good to uh, to see that happen on uh, Sunday, and hopefully he's got some more magic left uh, as we continue on, hopefully, through the playoffs here. And he even got some broken um, tackles and yards after the catch in the game. <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> quick quick, quick follow-up question to that. Uh, do you see uh, him coming back next year, or do you think this is it for him? Oh, no, I'm sure he's going to be back next year. I, I'd, have, I'd have to look at his contract. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I think his contract was pretty – uh, team friendly, and I think the team likes the idea of the combination of him and Irv Smith, who uh, is coming along uh, decently. And yeah, I think Irv Smith is going to slowly begin to overtake uh, Kyle Rudolph's role in this offense over the next uh, year or two. But yeah, I don't see any reason why Rudolph wouldn't come back. I mean, as Seth said, he took a lot, or not a lot less money, but he took less money to stay here. Uh, he's a big part of the community, and you know he loves Minnesota, obviously. And I don't think he'd—I uh, don't think the team would be inclined to get rid of him. So I think he's going to, you know, continue on here for at least another year or two. All right, uh, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, well, maybe we'll have to do this next week if uh, we get a win on Saturday. Hey, if we're still playing, uh, you know where to find me, and I will I will be here if there's a need for it. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, you have a good night, and uh, go Vikings. Go Vikings. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Seth. Have a good rest of your night. All right. Yeah, good to uh, you, Seth, too. I want to thank you for uh, hopping on and, and helping me out tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun to, to visit with you as well. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, it was kind of fun talking about some of this stuff as we were learning some of this stuff, the Sano deal, the, the Brio stuff. I mean, just a lot of stuff going on and um, still a few weeks till Twins Fest and then not too long till spring training. So, it's getting close. Yeah, it was great talking to Chris there about the Vikings. Obviously a huge game uh, tomorrow, uh, Saturday afternoon, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I think they've got a chance. Yeah, I think it could be a good game. Uh, all right, Seth, thanks a lot for covering for me tonight, uh, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch, I'm sure. Sounds good, thanks. Yep, thank you.
Our our final interview on Minnesota Sports Weekly is with uh, Ryan Burns of Gopher Illustrated. To talk about the Gophers and their and their victory over Auburn. So, without any further ado, bring uh, Ryan on and. Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly is friend of the show, Ryan Burns from Gopher Illustrated, amongst other places. Um, so I'm going to bring him right on the show. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing I'm doing excellent. Just me today. So uh, my I want to start off by going backwards a little bit and to the bowl game, the Outback Bowl on New Year's Day. Um, my first question for you is uh, Tyler Johnson. He had 12 catches, 204 with two touchdowns. In the grand scheme of things, where does, is his legacy going to be in Gopher history? He has been, if not the greatest wide receiver to come through the University of Minnesota, I think one of the best. Certainly when you look at the records he has now achieved both in a single season and in his career, he's had a lot of milestones. You look at where he ranks all-time now. He's the all-time leader in receiving yards at the University of Minnesota, receiving touchdowns. He's second all-time in catches. And then you also look single season-wise. Tyler Johnson's last two seasons rank him number one and number three all-time in receiving yards. I mean, what he's been able to do the last two seasons with Matt Simon and P.J. Fleck has absolutely been remarkable. I really think that if you look at the whole scope of things and you look at what Minnesota was able to do with Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson this season, I think we're going to be looking back on it here as as we go over time that Johnson and Bateman are the Maroney and the Barber of this generation. And I don't know that we're going to be able to see two NFL guys like this. Now, you hope that P.J. Flex able to continue to recruit well and develop receivers like he has at the University of Minnesota, but certainly what Tyler was able to do here, and especially in a lot of big games, if you go back and you look through <clears throat> the box scores of Tyler Johnson's career, he had some of his biggest games when the, when the lights were on him brightest. Now, I know that many fans won't soon forget the fourth down drop against Iowa, but certainly when you look at his, the scope of his entire career, it is certainly one that we're going to remember for a long, long time. Um, is, in your opinion, is to speak on that, is uh, I know you focus on the Gophers, but do you see Tyler Johnson having, regardless of where he's drafted, uh, have a, a niche in an NFL offense? I do, and uh, the reason I say that is because the two routes that he is so, so good at are two routes that are so prevalent in the NFL and that you can win on essentially in any kind of offensive scheme. And if there's a if there has been a player in the last 30 years that has run a slant better than Tyler Johnson and he's worn a gopher uniform, I'd love to see it. Because the way that Tyler was able to create separation on the slant and on the post we're so effortless. If you go back and you watch the clips and you go back and watch Tyler Johnson highlights, you're able to see that it, it doesn't look like he's exerting a lot of energy when he's doing that. And that's how you know someone's good at it, when they can just do it so seamlessly and so effortlessly. 
if you can run a slant and create separation in the NFL, you're going to be on a team. If you can run a post in the NFL and you can create separation off that, you're going to have a job somewhere. And that's where I think that his skill set isn't necessarily the deep speed. I think everyone listening knows that. But where he can win is in a phone booth. And if you can create separation in your routes, which Tyler Johnson showed he could do at the collegiate level, I don't think – I think – I certainly think that's something that's going to translate to the NFL, and that's why I think he's probably going to have a job here for at least the next handful of years. Okay. Uh, keep it on the senior uh, seniors and what, what their legacy is. Uh, Rodney Smith finished out his career. He had the ups and downs with the knee injuries and, and different injuries. Uh, what, what's your opinion on the career of Rodney Smith? That's a great question. Is you know you look at the scope of his entire career. I wish, I wish we would have been able to see in 2019 what we saw in the first three years of his career or the first three healthy years of his career. Because if you remember back, uh, back in the 2014, 15, 16 seasons. I mean, Rodney Smith was running into nine-man boxes all game long. Minnesota had Mitch Leidner as a quarterback that didn't really have any established otherwise passing options, and so Rodney Smith didn't have a great offensive line. He was running into loaded boxes all the time, and then you saw what he was able to do here the past couple of years. Now, he wasn't able to stay healthy in, in 2018, but he certainly here in 2019, this is a guy that essentially for most for, for this season, I believe, averaged over five yards a carry. And you look at it at the end of the day, he's the all-time leader in all-purpose yards passing Daryl Thompson. I believe he's second all-time in rushing yards just behind Daryl Thompson. And this is a guy who really didn't have a great offense for a majority of his career. And so you want to always just kind of think back what could have been if he would have come in in 2018 with P.J. Fleck in this offense, with this offensive line, with this quarterback and these these passing game targets to where – if you take two guys out of the box for 75% of Rodney Smith's career, that's probably going to make him look a little bit better in the stat sheet. But certainly a guy that really gave it his all. I know he's already had off-season surgery uh, to repair some things that happened in December. And it's truly a guy that gave it his all his entire career here, and that's certainly something I'm never going to forget. Okay, let's kind of look ahead a little bit uh uh, with Kirk Chiraka going to Penn State, there was a a, a need uh, at offensive coordinator, and the, the Gophers went a little uh, outside the box by going co coordinators in Matt Simon and also hiring Mike Sanchez Jr. What kind of dynamic do you see that bringing to the Gophers' offense? How is it going to be different and similar to what Kirk Chiraka did? Well, that's going to be the big question is you brought in a guy from the outside by Mike Sanford Jr. By all accounts, certainly has been uh, one of the young stars offensively in this profession this decade. I mean, you don't get a head coaching job, I believe, at the age of 33, which at, at the time, a few years back, was the youngest college football coach um, in that in that year, and I mean, you don't get that job without having an outstanding resume behind you. Now, the question is, how much is Sanford going to try and change this Minnesota offense? Because 
it was pretty dang good this year. And Minnesota essentially kept all of the remaining staff around him. So what are the little tweaks going to be? Now, I certainly think that one tweak would be without Tyler Johnson, and I don't know that you have a guy of his caliber waiting in the wings. You're going to have to involve the tight end more. You're going to have to involve the running back more in the passing game. Now, I know people uh, are very, very opinionated about Minnesota's lack of tight end targets. I understand that. But I think that with Brevin Span Ford, St. Cloud Zone, getting another year in the weight room, another year, uh, to really try and develop his body. I think that's where you're going to see him take a jump next year. I also think that Minnesota's just got to use the entire uh, scope of their arsenal. Yes, Rashad Bateman is really good. Chris Ottman-Bell is going to be a very good player, but you need to diversify your offensive portfolio with where you're uh, putting the targets because this offense has nine returning starters in 2020, including, maybe most importantly, number one, a second-team All-Big Ten quarterback. And for me, this is the best, go for quarterback returning and certainly my lifetime. And that there's a lot to be said about stability at the quarterback position. Plus Minnesota has all six offensive linemen who started games for them coming back. So you already have a pretty good offense. And the hope would be is that Stanford, who is going to be calling the plays doesn't tweak this offense too much to where they get out of rhythm. Um. So, so uh, Tanner Morgan, in your mind, is, is the starter. They're not going to make it a competition where bringing Jacob Clark and uh, Cole Kramer? I don't know how – I mean, I've gotten this question. I just don't know how in the world you could look at Tanner with a straight face and tell him it's a competition. With everything that he did this past season, you could arguably say he was the best passing quarterback in the Big Ten, and I think you would have an absolute legitimate argument – Yes, I understand that back in the fall there was – I mean, I was one of the people thinking that Zach Yannick said would emerge from that quarterback competition victorious, but it, he got hurt, and I think he got Wally pipped. And the way that Tanner was able to really run this offense incredibly effectively, the way he was able to take care of the ball, the way he was able to push the ball down the field, yes, you have talented guys behind him and Anikstead and Jake Clark and Cole Kramer, but there's just no possible way – I could abs- I could in any way justify looking at Tanner Morgan if you're Sanford and Simon and you go, yeah, we're going to open the quarterback competition back up. I mean, that'd be an absolute slap in the face to Tanner Morgan for everything he accomplished this year and everything he proved. So, yeah, you're going to have some adequate depth behind him, which is essentially the first time we've been able to say that about a golf football team. But I don't know how you don't have Tanner Morgan locked and loaded as your QB1 going into the spring. Okay, uh, at running back, we lose uh, not only Rodney Smith, but also Shannon Brooks. And so do, do you see a change in the guard, or is, is, is Mo Abraham, Abraham uh, going to be the, the bell cow, or could we see Cam Wiley, uh, Bryce Williams, uh, maybe even Jason Williamson? Uh, getting to get their share of, of carries as well. I do think Ibrahim, especially with the way he's been able to perform when he's gotten the carries, and he for this system that Minnesota just ran, I think his skill set as a physical north and south runner made the most sense, and that's why you saw him be so effective against a team like Auburn. 
Now, Mo can't handle 35, 40 touches a game. So you're going to have to have guys behind him. And I think the guys that I'd be watching most would be, you've already mentioned one of them, Cam Wiley, uh, the true freshman this past season, got some carries. I think that another year in the weight room will certainly help him. But what you saw out of him with limited snaps was this is a guy that has the vision. This is a guy that was patient. He saw the holes, and he's got the athleticism to certainly get there. And that's my biggest thing that maybe distinguishes him from Bryce Williams is I'm still not sold Bryce Williams has the vision in terms of being able to find holes, being able to see where they're going to be, not where they currently are. And I think Wiley certainly has that skill set. I also think people are sleeping a little bit on the two-time Gatorade Player of the Year in the state of Minnesota, Jason Williamson. Now, it's obviously not ideal that he tore his ACL back in the spring, but he should be 100% ready to go for spring ball. And with a lot of carries, essentially half the carries now gone, there's going to be an open competition there. I also think that the true freshman coming in, Kai Thomas, he'll be here in the spring. There's a reason he's the highest rated recruit from 24-7 in this class. His skill set is very, very good, and he's very, very athletic, and I think he's a guy that has the the skill set and the build to potentially come in right away and play. And then you also have Trey Potts, who also got carries this year from Minnesota. So there are a lot of guys vying for those Rodney Smith and Shannon Brooks carries, and the nice thing is competition makes everybody better. So, yes, Ibrahim knows he's probably going to be the starter this year. But as Glenn and Mason coined, you're going to need a pair and a spare, and we need to figure out who that second pair is and who that spare is because Minnesota, as we've seen throughout the course of time here, is going to need more than two, three guys to really make sure that they can make it through an entire season. Um, when it comes to uh... – is it a foregone conclusion in your mind that Anton William Winfield Jr. is going to the NFL this year? For me it is because you always want to sell when your stock is at its highest. And my argument would be how in the world can Antoine's stock get any higher? He was a first-team All-American. He had six interceptions and he stayed healthy for the first time in his gopher career, all things he hadn't done before. Now, if he, would, if he were to come back in 2020, what would he have left to prove? I think he's proven that mm-hmm. he's one of the best playmakers in the Big Ten. I think he's proven that he can stay healthy. Now, can he do it in consecutive years? I'm not sure. But I know that if I were advising him, I don't know what the NFL is telling him, it certainly, from my opinion, would make sense that you want to sell when your stock is highest and – he would go into the NFL. Now, I think it is interesting that we are almost a week removed from the bowl game and we've heard nothing. And to me, that means he's really contemplating whether he wants to come back or not. Now, obviously the Gophers would love to have him back. You always want your first team All-American defensive back back. But I would, you know, I would think it's a foregone conclusion, but as each day passes and we still don't get any word, I think your chances go up a little bit that Antoine's thinking about coming back. Um, as as many starters as they had on the offensive side of the ball, they lost. They're, they're losing that many uh, defensive uh, starters. Do you think there's enough depth on – on the roster and the recruiting class 
to make up for the guys that they're losing, the Carter Coughlin's, the the bar- Barbers, uh, all, all all the defensive stalwarts that, that they're losing. Well, we're going to find out because now we'll be in year four under P.J. Fleck, and you mentioned the core of that empire class that they like to uh, coin themselves, the Carter Coughlin's, Kamal Martins, Thomas Barber's, of the world, all these in-state guys that they were able to get and stay home on the defensive side of the ball, they're all going to be graduating. So now we're going to find out how well has P.J. Fleck recruited on the defensive side of the ball. You've seen offensively with Tanner Morgan, with Rashad Bateman, with Chris Bell, they've recruited well on the offensive side of the ball. But because they inherited such a talented group on defense, we really haven't had to see how good they were. And now we're going to find out because they're losing Sam Renner, Winston Delatty Boudere, Carter Coughlin on the defensive line. You're losing two linebackers in Kamal Martin, Thomas Barber, that have played a significant amount of snaps for the essentially the entirety of P.J. Fleck's career here at Minnesota. And then in the secondary, we'll see if Winfield comes back, but it's in that front seven that we're going to find out. Is Hopkins' Boye Mafe ready for a full-time role? He flashed a lot this season. I know I, I've said before that he's my breakout pick for the 2020 season defensively, but is he ready? Is the Sezi Otomiwu, number nine uh, for the Gophers, is he ready for a full-time workload as a redshirt junior? Is And then you look at the linebacker position, that's as wide open of a competition as the Gophers have right now, because you could say that Mariano Sori, Marin, and Braylon Oliver are the incumbent starters because they were the guys that played the most snaps behind them, but you have two tr- uh, true freshmen from this past season and Donald Willis and DJ Gordon that I think are going to certainly pose quite a bit of competition. You have a couple more true freshmen coming in in January and Anoka's Cody Lindenberg and IMG Academy's Jaquandis Burns. And that's where I think the defense next season is certainly going to make some more mistakes than what we saw. They're going to take some lumps because not only are they young, they're inexperienced. But there's not exactly anything you can do about the whole inexperienced part because you weren't going to take Kamal Martin off the field. You weren't going to take Carter Coffin off the field to get somebody else snaps. You wanted to win football games. So now you're going to see in 2020, these guys are going to take some lumps at times. But I do think they have the skill set to uh, hopefully pick it up sooner rather than later. Two quick ones, and I'll get you out of here. Um after three years of uh, P.J. Fleck, uh, what have we learned about him? <laughs> that, he's, that he did or he is doing what he said he was going to do. You look at what Minnesota did here in 2019. You won 11 football games for the first time since 1904. You won 10 regular season games for the first time since 1905. You won seven Big Ten games for the first time ever. You had two receivers in Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson get first-team All-Big Ten. That's the first time that's happened from the same school ever in Big Ten history. You had a quarterback turn it around and become a second-team All-Big Ten player. You won two top-ten games, including one at home against Penn State. You beat a very good Auburn team that wanted to be there on January 1st. Now, he did a lot of the things he said he was going to do, but the only thing left – to really do is he needs to get to the Big Ten championship game. And that's where you look at Minnesota's two losses this year against Iowa and Wisconsin. Well, if you want to win the Big Ten West, those are the two teams you have to go through. 
and they're not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. The way that Paul Christ and Kirk Ferentz run their program, these are very good football teams. And that's where if Minnesota wants to elevate themselves into becoming a perennial top 25 team every year, they're going to have to win those games or at least one of those games each year to put themselves in the conversation in late November like they did in 2019 to get to Indianapolis because that's the next goal. Get to Indianapolis and then you have a chip chair and a chance against Ohio State, just like Wisconsin did this past year. We'll see where the chips fall. But I think we've learned that P.J. Fleck Fleck is not all talk. He's not all smoke and mirrors. He just won 11 football games at the University of Minnesota for the first time in 100 years, and I think that is certainly something to celebrate. Okay, last question. Um, Schedule-wise, they don't play Ohio State. They uh, don't play Penn State. They they play the Michigan teams on the other side. Is schedule wise, and they have a tough out of conference with BYU. Uh, is uh, schedule wise is, is it made up where they could possibly win ten games again, or is that going to be difficult? I think it's I think it's possible, certainly. You look at the schedule and you mention it, you don't have Ohio State, Penn State on there. Uh you get to your tough crossover game would be Michigan and you get them at home. Um uh, I think you get Michigan State on a down year because all indications are that this Michigan State team that Minnesota's gotta go to isn't what they used to be five years ago, ten years ago. And it's going to come down to October for me. Uh, September, you have four home games, your toughest one being against Iowa on a Friday night. And that's where Iowa the week before has a very tough game against Iowa State. Well, Minnesota gets something called Tennessee Tech. So Minnesota should be rested a little bit more than what Iowa is, plus you get them at home. And then in October, you have five Big Ten games and four of them are on the road, including Wisconsin on the road. So you have Iowa and Wisconsin in your first six games of the season. We're really going to find out about where both teams are at. Iowa without Nate Stanley uh, and one of their best in their best defensive linemen, their best offensive lineman. Wisconsin without Jonathan Taylor and potentially their best receiver, Quintez Cephas, who lit up the Gophers at TCF Bank Stadium last year. I think it's doable because you look at after that, you, your final five games of the season are Illinois, Michigan State, Purdue, Northwestern, Nebraska. None of those teams really scare me, but for you to be able to potentially get to 10 games, you're going to have to take care of business. You're gonna, you can't lose any of your non-conference games, and then you have to win at least one of the three against Iowa, Wisconsin, and Michigan against top 25 teams. Now you get two of the three at home, but I don't know that we should be expecting 10 games, regular season games every season. Uh, I think that 8-9 is more realistic, but certainly the way that the schedule sets up for Minnesota next year, it's going to be tough. It's tough in September. It's tough in October. And then they have to finish well down the stretch. But they certainly, with everything they have coming back and the way that the schedule does set up, they look like a team that should be competing in the Big Ten West. All right, Ryan, I want to thank you for hopping on with me. It's always fun to talk over football. Uh, We'll have to do this again real soon. I appreciate the time. That was Ryan Burns of Gopher Illustrated. Uh, that's going to be a show. I want to thank Seth Stowes for jumping on 
with us. I want to thank Ted Schwerzler. I want to thank Devlin Clark. I want to thank Christopher Gates and uh, everybody that was on uh, part A of the show. I'm back and better than ever. So uh, thank you for listening and uh, tune in next week as we'll have another good show. All right. Good night, everyone. Bye.